0: Why do ERP and digital transformation projects fail, and what can we learn from these case studies? That's what we're going to talk about here in episode number 155 of Transformation Ground Control.
1: This is Transformation Ground Control. Your source for all things business, technology, strategy, and change.
0: Welcome to Transformation Ground Control, episode number 155. My name is Eric Kimberling. This is the podcast that has everything to do with digital transformation, including the people, process, technology, and strategy side of transformation. This podcast is produced by Major Tom Productions and sponsored by Third Stage Consulting, which is the company I'm affiliated with. Third Stage Consulting is an independent technology agnostic consulting firm that helps clients throughout the world reach their third stage of digital transformation success. We help clients with digital strategy, software evaluation, and selection implementation planning and implementation program management. So if you're looking for help on your digital transformation project, whether you're just starting out or well underway, reach out to us and learn how we can help. I'd be happy to chat with you about that at some point. I've included my contact information below if you'd like to chat at some point. I'm excited for today's episode. Um, This podcast, by the way, before I jump into it, this podcast has new episodes every Wednesday. You can find them at transformationgroundcontrol.com. If you want to go look at past or listen to past episodes, you go to TransformationGroundControl.com as well. And uh, you can find new episodes on that website every Wednesday as well as on YouTube, LinkedIn, and Twitter as well. So exciting episode for you today. I've always wanted to make a podcast episode. It's only taken me 155 episodes to get to it. But I've always wanted to make an episode that just focuses on failure and really unpacks case studies behind failure, really talking about specific failures in the marketplace why those projects failed, and what some of the lessons and takeaways are. So that's really the focus of today's conversation and today's podcast. We're going to dive into a bunch of different case studies, including case studies involving Target uh, out of Canada. We're going to talk about Hershey's, the large candy manufacturer. We're going to talk about Revlon, the makeup manufacturer. Uh, Haribo, the candy manufacturer. Little, the German retailer, the grocery retailer. And we're also going to dive into, in addition to unpacking some of these specific case studies of failure, understanding what happened, why they failed, we're also going to do a couple uh, deep dive conversations with a couple of guests. We're going to have John Belden on from Upper Edge. Uh, He's going to be on talking about why ERP implementations fail. So we're going to have a, a lengthy conversation about some of the root causes of failure. And we're also going to have Wayne Holtham from the Third Stage Consulting Asia Pacific team, who's going to be on talking about why SAP ERP implementations fail. So two different guests talking about the same topic, but obviously different perspectives and uh, really wanna dive deep into this whole concept of ERP failure and more importantly, what are the root causes that we can look at and make sure we avoid in our digital transformation projects. Now, one thing that fascinates me about failure is not only are there tons of lessons to be learned from failure, but also I've been doing this for about 25 years. I've been doing ERP implementations and digital transformations for about 25 years. And it's amazing to me how The technology has changed so much and has come so far in such a short period or i guess it's a long period now at one point it felt like a short period but it's been a longer period now a couple decades and so much has changed in the marketplace as far as technology but one thing that has not changed is the way that organizations approach their technology initiatives they are still making the same exact mistakes that i saw them making 25 years ago and in fact when i look back at failures and lawsuits that i first started getting involved with about 15 years ago as an expert witness Uh, i still see a lot of the same patterns and i don't know that the industry has really moved much off that needle or, or moved off that spot that they were 20 or 25 years ago in terms of how they deploy technology in the meantime technology is changing at a breakneck speed now instead of mainframes and green screen systems really old outdated technologies you've got ai and cloud and predictive analytics and internet of things all this cool stuff that is really game changing technology But yet organizations are still trying to deploy those new technologies in the old way that never worked even 25 years ago, let alone here in 2024. So I really want to dive into this topic in a bit more detail, and I've got a really fun uh, episode lined up for you here with with a lot of different uh, perspectives and content here. And before I dive in, though, one thing I'll, I'll point out, and we're going to dive into this in a little bit more detail with our guests, too, but I recently recorded a YouTube video for my YouTube channel where I talk about five common patterns that i've seen in expert witness cases that i've been involved with and i don't talk about this a lot on the show or in, in my content but i do serve as an expert witness for failures in lawsuits in the marketplace and we actually have a team of expert witnesses now it's grown from being just me as an expert witness to now we've got others on our team that are also expert witnesses And being an expert witness is different than our core business. Our core business at Third Stage Consulting is to help clients through their transformations, starting with digital strategy, selection, implementation, et cetera. We also get involved with helping clients recover their projects when they failed. And then in some extreme cases where there's legal action being taken or there's a lawsuit involved, attorneys will hire us. Attorneys in courts throughout the world will hire us to be independent agnostic experts to testify in court on why the project failed and what the root causes were. And ultimately the courts decide whose fault it was along the way but one thing that really fascinates me about being an expert witness is just all the great lessons we get from seeing these failures up close and personal when we're expert witness on these cases we get to unpack every nook and cranny every single detail of a project to reconstruct what happened and how things got as bad as they were and so you know in addition to getting to see all the status reports and all the executive steering committee reports and having access to the actual system and being able to look at the actual system the way it was designed and configured and deployed, looking at test scripts and uh, change management plans. You get to see all the deliverables and artifacts that are created throughout a project, but we also get to see all the emails, all the email communication that goes back and forth throughout a, a project team and throughout a project. And you can imagine some of the excruciating detail that we see over the course of a two or three or five year project or however long it is you see a lot of it's, – it's a lot of information we get access to. But the good thing is we get to see every single decision that's made, how it's made, why it was made, and you get to learn a lot about the organizational psychology that goes into these sorts of projects. And it's the organizational psychology, quite frankly, that leads to a lot of failure. Now, I don't want this podcast episode to turn into an organizational psychology discussion, although there's a lot of psychology underlying what we're talking about here today. But it is worth noting that organizations act – A bit strange when it comes to implementations and oftentimes that strange behavior combined with the self-interest of software vendors and implementers you put those two things together and it just creates a a, somewhat of a train wreck for lack of a better word and in this video that I recently filmed where I talk about five common reasons why expert witness uh, or why software lawsuits happen there's five patterns that I've seen throughout my career that are very consistent in failures and lawsuits The first is lack of realistic expectations. So when you look at why a project fails, one of the most common phenomena we see is that the project team, when I say project team, by the way, I'm talking about end client and software vendor combined. Usually, you know, there's a lot of blame to go around and, you know, attorneys will argue over who's more at fault than the other. But in general, I'm talking the overall team. The overall team has a lack of realistic expectations. Or in other words, they have unrealistic expectations for what it's gonna take to make the project to be successful. And when i say unrealistic expectations i'm talking about uh, an understanding and awareness of how long it's going to take how much it's going to cost the resource requirements um what kind of value you're actually going to get out of the system how painful the change itself might be for your organization all those unrealistic expectations lead to oftentimes an implementation plan that's not realistic and that implementation plan that's not realistic to begin with turns into reality or someone tries to convert that to reality and what ends up happening inevitably is that at some point along the way, the team realizes this is not a realistic plan. It never was realistic, and now we've got to a, a course correct. And unfortunately, you course correct by making a lot of bad decisions. You start cutting scope. You start cutting change management. You cut that extra cycle or two of testing out just to see if you can possibly make that original timeline you set because now you've committed to your – your executives and your board that you can do this in a certain amount of time. So you end up making a lot of bad decisions. So those unrealistic expectations lead to bad decisions later, which is really a root cause for a lot of the other noise or the other symptoms that you hear about in these sorts of projects uh, quite often. A second reason why failures happen and one of the most common reasons why they happen is a failure to define and adequately understand what the future state can and should look like for your organization. Too often, organizations get sold a bill of goods from software vendors that say, don't worry about defining your future state because our software will provide the answers, almost like a silver bullet or an easy button. And the reality is today's software, in most cases, is very flexible. There's a lot of different options, a lot of different ways you can deploy this technology. If you don't have an idea of what it is you want to be when you grow up and what you want your operational model to look like and your organization to look like, your overall operations to look like, you're going to be spinning your wheel spending a lot of time and money making decisions and trying to get aligned on what your future state is going to be and the person or the persons that are going to benefit the most from you taking a long time to make those decisions is your software vendor and your system integrator your implementation partner so of course they're going to tell you to hurry it along or, or just jump into the project let's get going because they can start billing and start charging you the subscription fees for the software they can start charging you for services right away and so there's a vested self-interest in seeing you jump right into a project, but the reality is the organizations that spend the time up front to define their future state and have a good understanding of what it is they want out of the project, those organizations tend to implement a lot faster and cheaper and more effectively than the ones that don't. So it may feel like you're you're slowing things down by defining your future state before you start an implementation in earnest, but the reality is you're going to speed things up and mitigate a ton of risk by doing that. It also gives your project team a lot of clarity, On decision-making throughout the project you know exactly what it is you're trying to accomplish you're all aligned as a team and it makes decision-making a lot faster and it gives you a lot more uh, sort of a North Star blueprint to how to deploy technology the third thing that we see that is extremely common in digital transformation failures is poor change management in fact every single lawsuit that I've testified for written report for change management has been a critical factor. It's been something wrong with the way the human component of change was handled. In many cases, the technology worked perfectly fine or close to perfectly fine, but it was still a massive disaster. It had nothing to do with the technology. It had more to do with people, maybe a little bit of the process, misalignment too, and there's other things that could go into that. But the people side is more often than not a root cause for change and what hap- or a root cause for failure. And what happens is organizations get this false confidence when they go into these projects and they assume that that change is not going to be hard because people are excited for the change up front and that's true for most organizations you go into a project you evaluate new options everyone's excited to get off the old garbage systems that they've been using for 20 years they're excited about the possibilities on the surface but then when you get into the implementation as you get further along you find that people start to resist change even if it's in a covert or a subtle way people are resisting change along the way and it's not always intentional it's not always sabotage in fact it's usually not but it's more subtle than that, which makes it really hard to identify. And that's why executives falsely believe that change is going to be easier than it really is. And therefore they underestimate or underinvest in change management. So that's a third reason for, uh, or a third common pattern we see in software lawsuits. Um, The fourth thing we see is poor program management and controls. So in other words, not having a good handle on the overall project and in many cases, delegating too much of the program management, or the project management to your software vendor or your implementation partner, when in fact your technical vendors are managing just the one work stream within a broader program. So it, so for example, your software vendor and implementer typically is not going to be the same party that's going to be good at organizational change, and data migration and integration and architecture, uh, process improvements, the overall program management, managing all these moving parts of a, of a program. They're going to be good at managing their one work stream but they're generally not good at the entire program and so organizations really need to take ownership of their program management ensure that they're managing the software vendor and vendors not the other way around and the ones that don't manage their software vendors well don't have good program management are much more likely to fail than the ones that that, uh, do the opposite and then finally the misfit between technology and business is another common reason for failure and what i'll say here is this is partially a technical issue in some cases it's because the software or it's because the client the end client chose the wrong software in the first place but i would say that's a, that's uh, more of an exception than the norm the bigger norm is not so much that they chose the wrong software it's that they can't get the business and the software to align so in other words business needs to change to fit the software or the software needs to fit the business or some mix of both but the organization for whatever reason can't figure out the recipe or the the right answer there and so that's really one of the keys there is you want to make sure that you are getting aligned on the business process, the organization, and the technical fit, all those things should align. If they're not aligned, the project is not gonna succeed no matter how talented your team is. So those are the five reasons that I outline in this video that'll be uh, coming out soon on my YouTube channel. And I dive into this in a lot more detail, so keep an eye out on my YouTube channel for that uh, video to be posted here soon. But I, I really wanted to use that to set the context for at a high level, you know, what some of the patterns are that we see in ERP lawsuits and failures. And again, we do a lot of work helping clients recover failures. We also do the expert witness work to help uh, attorneys decipher, or sift through who's at fault in these different projects. Um, but we also help clients through their implementations, their software selection, their digital strategy, and all that good stuff too. So we do a lot of stuff as a team. We've got a pretty uh, broad team of, of close to 100 people. So we've got a lot of experience in, in, in seeing a lot of different situations. And so I wanted to provide that context of the five reasons that we've most commonly seen Lawsuits happen and what I want to do in the rest of this episode is play you some clips and provide some content and some context of case studies of specific um, of specific failures and what some of the lessons and takeaways are and I try to pick some of the highest profile names out there partially because it'll pique your interest to see that even the largest most mature organizations out there are failing in their projects and also because there's some good takeaways when you look at these really complex large organizations that everyone's heard of there's a lot of good takeaways that we can that we can apply to our organizations, especially if we're not as complex or not as big of an organization as some of these companies. So we're going to look at case studies here in the rest of this episode. We're going to look at case studies of ERP failure at Target in Canada. That's where we're going to start the conversation here after a quick break. That's, that's coming up next. That's going to be with Kyler, Mitch, and Jordy from the Third Stage Consulting team. Um, they're going to do a, a roundtable discussion of why the the Target ERP implementation in Canada, in particular, why that project failed. And then we're also going to get into the Hershey's failure. Uh, we'll provide a case study there. And then we'll have our next guest on the show after that will be John Bilden from Upper Edge. He and I are going to have a conversation about why ERP implementations fail. We'll get into some more case studies involving Revlon, Haribo, and Little. Uh, Revlon's the consumer product company. Haribo's the candy company. And Little is a retailer, a grocery retailer based out of Germany. So we'll talk about failures at those those three organizations. And then finally, last but not least, we'll have a lengthy conversation with Wayne Holtham from the third stage consulting team who's gonna be on talking about why SAP implementations fail. And even though that segment is focused on why SAP implementations fail, it's actually relevant to any sort of implementations. We're not here to pick on SAP. Um, Some of you may wonder too, why are we picking on case studies that are failures that involve SAP? I think every single one of these case studies we're gonna get to today, if not most of them, or most of them, if not all of them, are SAP implementations. That is not by design. That's simply because, if you think about it, large, high-profile organizations are much more likely to implement SAP than any other system. So the sample size is a bit skewed in that regard. But we're not here to pick on SAP or any specific software vendor. We're here to talk about general... Uh, failure lesson. So that's what we're going to get to today. We're going to get into starting things off here in just a moment, though, with the the failure, the ERP failure at Target in Canada with Kyler, Mitch, and Jordy from the Third Stage Consulting team. But first, we're going to take a quick break. We'll be back with more Transformation Ground Control.
2: Interested in working for a company that truly values your unique skills and experience? Here at Third Stage, we don't hire based on resumes alone. We look at the full candidate experience and willingness to provide excellent service for our clients. Within a technology independent and agnostic consulting firm, you have the opportunity to learn across industries with a diverse group of clients. Our consultants also have the opportunity to diversify their portfolio and learn across technology systems. If you're interested in joining a high-growth entrepreneurial organization, please reach out to us at work at thirdstage-consulting.com.
0: Hello, welcome back to Transformation Ground Control, episode number 155. My name is Eric Kimberling. Here are third stage consulting, we're an independent consulting firm that helps clients throughout the world to reach their third stage of digital transformation success. You can find new episodes of this show every Wednesday at transformationgroundcontrol.com. You can also go back and watch every episode dating back to episode one of the uh, podcast, which is actually kind of entertaining to do because I had no idea what I was doing in that first episode. I, in some some days, I still don't know what I'm doing in this podcast, but uh, the production value in the uh, my lack of knowledge about being a podcast host is somewhat entertaining if you're if you're so inclined. And there's good content going back that far too. I, I will admit we had some good guests uh, going back to the very beginning. So be sure to check that out transformationgroundcontrol.com. You can see all the past episodes and see new episodes every Wednesday. And uh, appreciate you being here today. The show is sponsored by Third Stage Consulting and produced by Major Tom Productions. So, uh, first case study we want to get to here get to here today is actually something I'm going to turn over to our guests. We have Kyler Cheatham, Mitch Otteson, and Jordy McDougall from the Third Stage Consulting team. They are going to sit down and have a roundtable discussion of the ERP failure at Target in Canada. And Target, if you don't know, is a big uh, uh, mid – or it's a large retailer. Uh, I think they're they're based in the U.S., but this is the Canadian um, entity of Target. And Target is a worldwide organization, but this is just the Canada – uh, segment of the company that failed uh, in their ERP implementation. So we're going to talk about that. So let me turn it over to you, Kyler, to guide the discussion here on Target's ERP failure.
2: Digital transformation comes with failures in very high profile marketplaces. And today we're actually going to dig into a case study that focuses on uh, a global retailer Target and the digital transformation failure within the Canadian market. I'm Kyler Cheatham from Third Stage Consulting Group. We are a completely independent and 100% technology agnostic advisory firm that helps our global clients achieve that third stage of digital transformation. So I am very excited to welcome my colleagues, Jordi and Mitch to this conversation to kind of help us unpack what we can really learn from this high profile failure. So with that, I'd love to introduce them. And I'm actually gonna start with Mitch and then we'll go to um, Jordi, who's actually our Canadian expert here. So. So, Mitch, can you kind of tell us your role here at Third Stage and your background in failure specifically?
1: Sure. Well, that's a, that's a lot to start <laughs> off with.
2: <laughs> your digital transformation failure. <laughs> yeah.
1: So, my name is Mitch Johnson. I'm director of transformation here at Third Stage. Um, I've got quite a bit of background in operations mm-hmm. um, and also just really being mm-hmm. on the line of where business operations meets technology and um, how <laughs> technology can support uh, a growing business.
2: Absolutely. And you lead a lot of our restoration work. So this is, you know, kind of your sweet spot and knowing, you know, what that looks like as far as getting a, a digital transformation back on track.
1: Yep. And also a big fan of Target. So if you're out there, I know. call me. Uh,
2: Sponsorships are available. That's right. no, they probably might want, not want to sponsor <laughs> Um Well, Jordy, you are our resident um, Canadian. So tell us a little bit about your background and what you're doing you, at third stage and then you can teach us a little bit about Canada.
4: Sure, yeah, I'm a consultant here at Third Stage. Um, Mainly work on the delivery side of things. Uh, We'll go in, work with our clients on site, uh, whether that's requirements gathering, gathering pain points, learning how they operate, and then from there, um, just basically working through whatever sort of engagement we're in, whether that's a software selection, implementation readiness, or uh, implementation. So a little bit of everything.
2: Yeah, a little bit of everything. Excellent, and so where are you from in Canada?
4: I'm from Lumsden, Saskatchewan, Canada.
2: Bonus points if you know where that is. (laughs) Oh, yeah. yeah. Even better, even better. So what is one thing that you miss a lot about living in the States from Canada?
4: I would say probably all the different chocolate bars that we do not have here. So that's Coffee Crisp, um, Arrow, Caramel. Uh, okay. There's there's quite a few, and, and I honestly I kind of forget about them until I go home, yeah. and then I'm like, wow. So, that's one thing.
2: Well, that's funny. As a chocolate connoisseur myself, I'm obviously going to need to take a trip to some of our our Canadian um, clients. And as we talk about the failures in specific marketplace, a lot of times we do a lot of inside research on marketplaces that we support a lot so that we can make sure that we're matching culture with execution when it comes to business strategy. So that's why we're having our conversation um, here today about digital transformation failure, specifically in Canada. So we wanted to, to give a case study of kind of a high profile failure, which is Target, one of the, the biggest retailers here in the United States. And so they recently had gone to implement stores in the Canadian market. And a few things went wrong with that. So just giving you kind of an overview of what happened um, for the Target case study. And then we can kind of dig into what tactical approaches and learnings we could take from that. So in 2015, Target said it would close all of the stores it had opened in Canada and actually exit the marketplace. So starting from scratch, complete failure on that. Um, on that part so what it actually did is it withdrew over 5.4 billion with a B um, and net loss of 2 billion um, from the actual marketplace so huge failure so really how did this happen so when we look at the reason for this I want to start with inventory management a lot of times when we're looking at clients with new technology they're trying to break into a new marketplace And a lot of times they can do that from a technical standpoint, but as we mentioned, business operations is a huge part of that. So Target went in and opened 124 stores without an inventory management plan and without a clear supply chain. They thought they could just transfer their supply chain from their their marketplace in the States to a new area in which they've never serviced before. So, Mitch, when you do have a client that comes to you and looks at a completely new operational business strategy and execution in a new marketplace, how important is things like inventory management and supply chain specifically for brick and mortar retail when you're looking at a successful transformation project?
1: Oh, it's huge. I mean, in a retail environment, your supply chain and your flow of inventory is the lifeblood of your business. So if you're having supply chain disruptions, uh, it's no no surprise that they experience those types of losses I mean, that's everything
0: yeah okay we're here with kyler mitch and Geordie talking about the erp failure at target in canada we've got a lot more to dive into a lot more lessons to get to but first we're going to take a quick break we'll be back with more transformation ground control
5: when i wake up well i know i'm gonna be i'm gonna be the man who makes up next to you when i go out if you are aiming for transformation success turn to third stage consulting group to see how we can help you reach the third stage of transformation success, learn more about us and download independent reports, videos, and other best practices at thirdstageconsulting.com.
1: Hello,
0: welcome back to Transformation Ground Control, episode number 155. My name is Eric berling And you can find new episodes of the show every Wednesday at transformationgroundcontrol.com. You can also go to that same website, transformationgroundcontrol.com, to subscribe on whatever platform you prefer to listen or watch the show on, uh, including YouTube and uh, podcast audio platforms throughout the world. So be sure to check us out there. We're here in the midst of a conversation between Kyler, Mitch, and Jordy from the Third Stage Consulting team talking about the ERP failure at Target and some of the lessons from that. So let's jump back into the conversation.
2: And so being Canadian, Jordi, we did learn through our um, research on this case study that a lot of times the marketplace lives close to the United States or lives close at least within driving distance that they could access one of those bigger retailers. And that was a main pain point in the project because if now you launch all of these new beautiful stores that you spent money to build, staff, have inventory around, and you have the ability to go source that in another area. It sounds like the consumer perception of the targets in Canada were not all that positive.
4: Yeah, and I remember when Target tried to uh, move into Canada and many people such as myself went in looking for goods that you would find in the United States and and you couldn't find them. And so there was uh, a big lack of standardization between targets in the United States and targets in Canada. And when you look at the population as a whole, there's really not a huge difference between Canadians and, and Americans. And at least that's what I think from my experience. There's lots of similarities. So um, looking at the lack of standardization there in what they provided was was pretty shocking. And I yeah. do remember that and being like, why wouldn't we just go to the American Target Center We're that close to the border?
2: Yeah. That's interesting that you say standardization, because I think that that's so important But going back to Mitch's point about the cultural nuances, Canadian and U.S. Americans, that's a pretty similar culture. When you're looking at the globalization of technology, the standardization on the process side is so important. But what about the people side? Even when you're going to a new marketplace that you feel like is very similar to the one you've operated in before, how important are cultural assessments, Mitch, when you are kind of going into understanding a new consumer base and how they integrate with your technology?
1: Yeah, I mean, it, it's one of the most important things you can do is to understand your culture and your workforce and also your brand. So when I think about you know the fact that they're frontline employees at these brick and mortar locations, um, you know, it's really hard to communicate with them at a global level. So it really makes your communication plan and your communication strategy that much more important to make sure that everyone's on the exact same page and making sure that your strategy goes from all the way to the top, all the way to that frontline employee that's there. Um, and then also your brand. You know, Jory mentioned not having the same consistent experience everywhere. Um, that's huge. You need to be able to say, you know, though I like going to Target because no matter where I go, uh, It's the same experience everywhere. Mm -hmm. It doesn't matter which one I go to. I know that I can find the things that I need to get. Yeah, Yeah, you rely on that. And so without having that uh, executed, uh, I can see why it was a poor experience for those customers.
2: So let's talk a little bit about restoration and kind of closing out this conversation. What can we learn from this? So they went in hard, right? They launched a lot of stores all at once within a new marketplace, which when you have the capital of that type of company would might make sense so when you have a company that's struggling with inventory management or supply chain what are a few things that you come in and say all right how do we write this ship how do we ensure that we're getting um, good behaviors on the inventory side on the supply chain side what are some recommendations that you would give a company like that when they are struggling
4: i would think about analyzing my current market and Mm -hmm and trying to understand and forecast which products you should bring into to the store and then which ones will be uh, high ticket offerings and which which products do you need to have a, a, a bigger backfill or supply of in your warehouses. I think that's one thing that um, the Canadian targets could have learned from yeah. is to analyze their current market. I said that it's very similar to the United yeah. States, but there's definitely some yeah. some differences and little tiny nuances. So beginning with the end in mind, seeing what your consumers are really looking for and then working from there backwards and, and making sure that your supply chain fits the need that the consumers are looking
2: for 100 that customer centric approach to business operations is a main trend that we've seen in 2024 it's no longer just back house right we've seen with the COVID 19 pandemic how that can really affect front-end consumers So final thoughts here, Mitch, on looking at supply chain specifically, because that is the reason for this billion dollar failure, ultimately. How important is supply chain management visibility within your overall technology stack so that you're able to forward think these types of failures?
1: I don't know how you can try and execute a project like this with this skill without supply chain visibility. Uh, understanding the rate and turnover for all of your products and and the velocity that they're moving. um, I don't know how anyone can do that and try and do that at that scale without those key insights. So it it seemed like it was doomed to fail uh, based on the way that they went about doing these things based on what
2: we're saying here. Absolutely. Well, lots of great information that we learned from here. So thanks for kind of unpacking that and sharing your insights with us when it comes to this failure within the Canadian market. We always turn to our audience because the importance of the third stage mission is the diversification of communication and the sharing of learning. So if you do have more insights around this transformation failure or failures in general, I encourage you to share in the comments. You can also view our YouTube channel for additional failures in other areas, as well as some supply chain and inventory management supporting systems and strategies.
0: All right, thank you, Kyler, Mitch, and Jordy. Great conversation, good stuff there. A lot of good takeaways and lessons. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to talk about Hershey's. That's going to be our next case study we're going to get to. And later in the show, we'll also get to Revlon, Haribo, Little. We'll also talk about why ERP implementations fail. So be sure to stick around. We've got a lot more to cover here in the, we'll call it the uh, the ERP project failure episode of Transformation Ground Control. We'll be right back. Just tell me what you Hi, my name is Eric Kimberling. I'm your host here on Transformation Ground Control. And if you haven't already, I want to invite you to buy my new book. It's called The Final Countdown, Strategies to Reach the Third Stage of Digital Transformation. It's my first book. I'm very proud of it. I love this book. And it was my attempt to create a summary and a playbook for what it takes to be successful in defining a digital strategy and a roadmap for your organization. So there's a lot of things we can cover. When we talk about digital transformation, we talk about a lot of stuff on this show, but I wanted to condense it into a readable sort of a sequential format that made it easy to help define a digital strategy for project teams that is unique to your organization, unique to your goals and objectives. So really, I uh, hope you'll you'll read it. I hope you enjoy it. Again, it's called The Final Countdown. You can read that book by scanning the QR code right here in front of you, or you can go to thefinalcountdown.com. Um, again, it's it's been an Amazon bestseller since it came out, so I encourage uh, you to check it out and love to hear your views and your comments on it, too. So The Final Countdown, my New book. You can go to the final or scan the QR code in front of you. Hope you enjoy, and we'll see you soon. Hello, welcome back to Transformation Ground Control, episode number 155. My name is Eric Kimberling. You can find new episodes of this show every Wednesday at transformationgroundcontrol.com. Be sure to share this with uh, whatever colleagues that uh, you think might be interested in it. This uh, podcast covers everything you need to know about digital transformation, including the strategy, people process, and technology aspects of transformation. And of course, today we are talking about ERP failures and some of the lessons from ERP lawsuits as well. So we're going to continue that thread here by talking about Hershey's. Uh, Hershey's is a well-known candy manufacturer that about 20 years ago, I think it was about 20 years ago, Um, had a ERP implementation failure, and even 20 years later, some of the lessons here are so relevant. And again, as I said in the opening segment of the show or of this episode, so many organizations are making the same mistakes now as they were 20, 30 years ago. And I think when you hear this case study from Hershey's or regarding Hershey's, you'll hear that there's not a whole lot that's changed in the way organizations treat their ERP implementations of their digital transformations. So I'm going to play you this clip. This is actually a clip from my YouTube channel where I dive into the Hershey's case study, and I thought this would be a good quick 10 minute overview of the Hershey's uh, ERP implementation, why it failed and what some of the takeaways were. So let's roll the clip here regarding the Hershey's failure and their ERP project. Many of you may have heard about Hershey's, the candy company that failed in its implementation of an ERP system called SAP back in the late nineties. And even though this was over 20 years ago, there's some lessons that are fundamental to any ERP implementation that we can still learn from here today. In fact, if any organization were to make the same mistakes that Hershey's made back in the late 90s, they would fail even today, even with the advent of new technologies and new ways of doing things. So it's really important that we understand why the company failed and what we can do to get it back on track. So what I want to do today is talk about why Hershey's failed in its first attempt at an ERP implementation and what some of the lessons are that we can apply to our organizations if you're looking for more digital strategies and tips on how to make your digital transformation or erp implementation more successful i encourage you to read my new book called the final countdown it's a book that covers digital strategy and all the things you need to do from a technology agnostic perspective to make your project successful you can read that by scanning the qr code in front of you going to thefinalcountdown.com, or you can scan the links in the description field below So it's commonly known that Hershey's failed in its ERP implementation. But how do we know? What are the metrics that point to the fact that it was a failure? Well, first of all, let's start with the budget. The budget was $112 million SAP implementation. The company was implementing a legacy SAP product called R3 back in the late 90s. And they were doing this as a way to really modernize their systems, modernize their supply chain, and be able to scale on its way from being a billion-dollar company to a $5 billion company at the time. But what happened at the end of the day once they went through this project is not only did it cost 112 million dollars which is a lot of money especially back then but it also resulted in hershey's losing 150 million dollars in sales at the time they went live and the reason for this which i'll get into a little bit later is because they couldn't ship product that they had in stock largely so that was part of the problem is they couldn't track the inventory and they couldn't get the inventory out the door to customers when they needed it at a peak seasonal time And so the key thing here that I alluded to is the fact that much of this inventory was in stock, the physical stock was there, but because of the system failure, people couldn't see where the inventory was and they couldn't ship it to the customers when they needed it. And what this did is it resulted in Hershey's having a 20% drop in profit the quarter that they went live on the new system. And it also resulted in an 8% decrease and drop in their stock price just in one day, once this news was announced so the financial implications and the financial results of this implementation point to a massive failure that most organizations want to avoid so what i want to do next is not just talk about these symptoms these things that arose from the failure but talk about the root causes of why did this project fail what did they do wrong and how did it translate into those negative financial results and that's what i'll cover next first let's start with the overall implementation strategy and plan which was highly flawed in my opinion based on what i've read during research of this and first of all let's look at the overall implementation duration the implementation duration was recommended to be 48 months which is about four years seems like a long time but for a large organization that seems pretty reasonable but what hershey's did is they pushed back on that duration and said they wanted to try to get it done in 30 months not 48 reason being is this is in the late 90s and there was a fear that the Y2K situation was gonna get the best of them. In other words, back in the 90s, a lot of companies were worried about their legacy mainframe systems, which was what Hershey's was on. They were worried that the two-digit year code, so in other words, 1999, would be entered in a system as 99, not 1999. People were worried that once 2000 hit and it switched to 00 in the system, that the systems would all crash. Now, that never happened to anyone, by the way, so it makes you wonder if this was a real fear or if it was generated and produced and manufactured by the software industry, but that's a whole topic for another video. But the point is that Hershey's was afraid of Y2K. They knew they had to switch their systems faster. They thought they needed to switch their systems faster, so they compressed that time frame into an unrealistic 30-month duration. They also opted for a big bang approach, largely because of this 30-month timeline. They wanted to streamline things and go with a big bang approach, meaning that they were gonna deploy all the modules and all the functionality all at once, overnight, flip the switch onto the new system. That's a highly risky endeavor that companies actually used to do back in the 90s and early 2000s. You don't hear about it as much nowadays because I think a lot of organizations understand the risks and they're not willing to take that risk. But at the time, Hershey's went with a big bang approach and they flipped the switch on a lot of functionality almost too fast faster than the organization can handle it clearly perhaps even more damaging was that they limited their testing so they didn't test the system the way they should have they scaled back on their testing cycles largely because again they were trying to compress their implementation into a 30-month timeframe when it probably should have been closer to the 48 months that was originally planned for so testing was something that got off track and i'm going to come back to that because that's a really important point and one of the core root causes of why this project failed is because they didn't test some of the core critical processes that happened during the holiday season for a chocolate manufacturer. I'll come back to that point too. And then finally, as part of their implementation strategy and plan, they stockpiled some extra inventory in the event that there was a problem, but they only stockpiled eight days on average of inventory. So they thought we are increasing the number of days of inventory we have on hand. That should cover any outage that we might have or any problems we might have. But it turns out that wasn't nearly enough. They should have had a lot more inventory on hand for the implementation. So these are some of the flaws and fatal mistakes that they made early in the implementation planning and the overall implementation strategy. And these are mistakes that most of us could avoid by taking a better path for the digital strategy. Now, somewhat related to the implementation planning and strategy, is seasonality And I'm gonna call this out separately though because it's so important to Hershey's and it's so important to many organizations that we work with as well when you're looking at your business most of us have some sort of seasonality some ebbs and flows in demand and sales are increasing or dropping at certain times we have resources that are being committed at certain times during peak seasonal periods and that's generally the time the last time on a calendar that you want to go live with a new system what happened in the case of Hershey's is that they originally planned to go live in the spring of 1999, but they clearly didn't hit that go live date, didn't end up going live till July. And even then they weren't ready for go live, but they still did go live right in July, which is really the peak of their season because they're ramping up production and shipments for Halloween and Christmas. So they go live in July, 1999, it turns into a disaster. I'll talk more about why it was a disaster and what some of the symptoms were. But the point here is that they should never have gone live at a peak seasonal time. It may have meant that they should have just pushed off or delayed the project further and waited until things settled down and it was a lower seasonal spike and gone live then. That would have been a lot less risky, but they didn't do that. So that's a lesson we can take away here is, in general, just don't go live in the middle of your peak seasonal period. Another fatal flaw in the Hershey's case is that they didn't do adequate testing and training. And more specifically, they didn't do adequate testing and training of specific business processes that were specific to their peak seasonal times. So I mentioned a moment ago that they went live right at the peak seasonal time, which is not recommended, but they did. And what they found is that the system couldn't handle some of the exceptions and some of the things they would do as a business operationally during peak seasonal times. So for example, one thing that Hershey's was doing at the time is that they would have temporary warehouses to accommodate the extra inventory they needed to get ready for these peak seasonal times for Halloween and Christmas. And what happened was when they deployed SAP, the way they designed and built SAP, they didn't account for these temporary warehouses. So when all these orders started coming in, in the summer of 1999, when they went live with the new system, the temporary warehouses weren't there. It didn't show up in the system. So it looked like the inventory wasn't there. You go to enter an order for inventory that physically is there, but it's not in the system because that warehouse that's temporary didn't exist in the system and this is a great example of how not only do you need to test stuff thoroughly but you need to create scenarios that reflect your business and what ended up happening here at Hershey's is that the IT department and the project team the technical project team was deploying this technology and making these decisions without operational inputs so in other words the operations people probably would have called a timeout and said hey what about these temporary warehouses how do we handle that in this new system and they would have worked through that and designed it accordingly so that didn't happen and therefore that's a big part of why the system failed is because they didn't account for these key business processes, they didn't test it and they didn't train people on how to use the software in a way that would accommodate these different business processes. Hershey's also suffered from some organizational issues at the time it was going through the implementation, not necessarily related to the project itself but just in general. For example, the company did not have a CIO leading up to the implementation. I think they hired a CIO somewhere along the way during the implementation, but they didn't have one going into the implementation. So they didn't have really strong technical leadership at the time that they started the project. Another challenge is that there was a disconnect between IT and the business. I mentioned a moment ago that there were key business processes that were not considered and baked into the implementation because the IT people were driving the process and they were making decisions without enough input from operations. And they ended up overlooking a really critical part of their business and their operations during seasonal peak times. And lastly, Hershey's didn't appear to have experience or much experience deploying a technology initiative of this magnitude. They had deployed smaller, more isolated, limited technology projects in the past with their legacy systems, but they had never gone through an enterprise-wide implementation. And so they just didn't have that internal competency and experience. And when you combine that with the disconnect between IT and the business and the fact that there's no CIO, that created a perfect storm of organizational issues that contributed to the problem as well. Now, another thing to consider that Hershey's may not have, I don't know this for a fact, but I suspect they did not consider the cost of disruption. And what I mean by the cost of disruption is what happens if the project fails or what happens if we have problems during the implementation. Most organizations are really good at planning and budgeting for the implementation itself. What they think it's gonna cost to go through the implementation, but what they're not good at is quantifying the risk of what happens if we can't ship product. What happens if we can't close the books? What happens if we can't run payroll? What is that gonna cost us? And in this case, as I mentioned at the top of the video, Hershey's lost $150 million in sales that they never recouped. And what's even worse is in many cases, customers, which were their end retailers, ended up switching from hershey's and allocating more of those orders to mars and some of the other competitors so they lost business and they lost some customer loyalty as a result of that and i'm not sure how you quantify that but there is a cost associated with that as well in addition the stock price dropped by eight percent overnight literally overnight once this news was announced and investors and customers continued to lose confidence in the company now the good news is that over time hershey's did figure things out they did re-implement or try to go through the implementation again in the early 2000s And apparently from what i've read they were able to do that on time and on budget and went a lot more smoothly the second time around so the good news is it appears that they learned from some of the mistakes they made and they were able to rectify that in the early 2000s and if you fast forward to now there's news out recently that they're going through another digital transformation i have no idea how it's going they're not a client of ours so i don't know if it's on track if it's not i'm not sure what the situation is but it is worth noting that there's key mistakes they made over 20 years ago that are still relevant to us here today. And these are lessons that we can take and apply to our digital transformations and ERP implementations here in the 2020s. All right, well, that's a classic case study involving a well-known company that failed in their ERP implementation, didn't get the timing right. There was a lot of testing issues, a lot of common challenges that they had in, in that project that led to uh, a failure and ultimately uh, a lawsuit, uh, I believe. And so. Uh, a lot of failures that um, could point to that same case study and say that they made the same mistake. So a lot lots to learn there. In fact, we're going to shift gears and bring on another guest here after a break. We're going to bring John Belden on the show from uh, Upper Edge. And Upper Edge is a company, I'll let him describe it here in just a minute. Uh, but they're also a technology agnostic advisory firm, a little bit different than my company, uh, Third Stage. Uh, they do slightly different service offering, but I'll let him describe that here in just a moment. But we're going to have him on the show, and we're just going to have a conversation about why ERP implementations fail, really trying to get to the root cause of why that is. And then later, after John's on the show, we're going to have case studies where we dive into Revlon, Haribo, Little, as well as another segment on why ERP implementations fail with one of our team members at Third Stage Consulting. He'll be on the show later as well. So be sure to stick around. We'll be right back with more Transformation Ground Control. Welcome back to Transformation Ground Control, episode number 155. This is the podcast that has everything to do with digital transformation, including the strategy, people, process, and technology components of transformation. You can find new episodes of this show every Wednesday by going to transformationgroundcontrol.com. And the show is sponsored by Third Stage Consulting, which is a tech agnostic consulting firm that helps clients throughout the world with their digital transformation journeys. And it is sponsored, or it's produced by Major Tom Productions. So, um... Thank you for being here today, and I'm excited for our next guest, who's actually on this podcast uh, over a year ago, and it was a great discussion. He was on the show to talk about ERP implementations and why they fail, and we thought this would be a great clip to play for you, replay for you here, uh, especially if you missed it the first time around, given that this is the ERP failure episode. We thought it would be great to talk about the root causes of why implementations fail. So with all that being said, I'd like to – Turn it over to my discussion with John Belden from Upper Edge to talk about why ERP implementations fail. Let's roll the clip.
3: So let me just give you a quick background. Um, Upper Edge is a um, third party consulting firm, third- party advisor, um, and we've been now around for about 10 years. Uh, we were formed based upon a, I'll call it um, it used to be a small company called AMR Research. And when AMR research uh, got purchased, Dave Blake, who is the founder of uh, Upper Edge, uh, took the, uh, I'll call it the advisory service that used to work with people on uh, negotiating their deals with Accenture negotiating their deals with IBM or SAP. He started up his own third party uh, advisory firm that actually does the same thing. So our foundation and our roots is a third party advisory service that focuses on helping clients, I'll call it, um, work in the negotiation with those Um, those types of firms. There's a commercial advisory component of Upper Edge, and then there is what I refer to as, what we refer to as a project execution advisory service. And in the project execution advisory service, that's the area that I lead, we really focus on, I'll call it, maximizing the value that our clients get out of their systems integrators. So if you're doing a $20 million deal with with Accenture as an example, you know accenture will come and help you get all the value out of sap or all the value out of oracle but accenture doesn't come with a user manual that says how do you maximize the value out of the third party right or out of your systems integrator once you've signed the contract and so that's the area that our project execution advisory services focus on is not on how best to run your project but how best to maximize the value that you get out of your systems integrator that's running that project with you and for you so it's a little bit of a you know a little bit of a variant and we don't come in and do the project but we will help you maximize the value that you get out of them Uh, i've been with upper edge now about eight years uh, in this capacity prior to that and this is where you and i met right prior to that uh, i worked for a company called the timkin company uh, manufacturing organization out of, uh, Canton, Ohio, roughly, uh, it was about a $5 billion organization at the time. My last role before I retired there was to lead the Temkin company's transformation and the implementation of SAP it was about a five-year program at the time, a uh, global program, putting it in, I would say it was roughly $200 million in, uh, at the time. So pretty substantial, uh, transformation effort. And that's really where I got, I'll call it, um, my foundation in understanding transformation and where I became a student of transformation failures because a lot of the problems that we have when I got out there and googled it it was well we're not the first one to have this problem we're certainly not going to be the last one to have these problems and that's where I became kind of a student in this space of of failures and how they fail and looking for insights into can you understand when a project's going to fail well in advance of that failure, kind of predictions, and that's that's where it really kind of became the foundation of the the service offering as well.
0: Yeah, that's that's interesting and interesting background of how you know how your career has evolved and also how Upper Edge formed uh, ten years ago. Uh, what's interesting when you were describing that, you, you talked about the value maximizing the value of a system integration. I'll, I'll come back to that point, but I, we have some questions we'll get to on that. <laughs> you say that because it's very rare if ever that you hear someone say what's the value you're getting out of your system integrator usually it's yeah like, what's the cost what's the price tag how can i drive that cost down it's sort of it's an interesting take on that, that i want to come back to because I, I think that's an important point
3: yeah it is and it's a lot easier to drive higher levels of value than it is to drive lower levels of cost
0: It's a great point yeah yeah let's come hold that thought though i want to come back to that because that's, that's a really important area to dive into um, and we sort of broke, you know, the questions that, that I have for you are sort of broken into two halves. And uh, this is not meant to be overly scripted by any means. And certainly, sure. like I said, if the audience has questions, love to get your questions as, as we go here. We sort of broke it up into sort of a segment up front where we talk a little bit about uh, just some case studies or examples of failures, sure. sort of what happened and just what's the story behind those failures. And then in the latter part, after we get through that, then I want to talk through, just unpack that a little bit, what causes mm-hmm. failure and what some of the mm-hmm. decisions are and, the things that lead up to failure. So to start, I know you study this, you're, you're sort of a student of, of transformation failure as much like I am. And it's fascinating to learn from, and there's so much good info you can get from it as, as unfortunate as those situations are. Um, but you've got a couple in mind, or you've got a, could you share a couple of case studies with us, or maybe give us a couple stories of uh, well-known or maybe not so well-known trans- Yeah.
3: So, so let me start with one that's probably not well-known and let me, let me make sure that um, I, I convey, how we do our research first, um, because the the research that we do is all based upon publicly available information in some fashion. Meaning, you know, I'm either looking at lawsuits, I'm looking at published audit reports, I'm looking at, uh, I'll call it um, uh, company, uh, you know, the company, let's call it the um, transcripts that come out of calls. Uh, their Their company reports, et cetera. Um, and the reason I stipulate that up front is because I don't want anybody to think that I'm breaking any confidentiality agreements that we have as a result of working in that particular environment. So everything I'm going to talk to you about is something that has been published and at least well-known or at least available. Right. Um, so the first one that I, that I teed up, which is one that is um, not written about a lot, is a company called Israeli Chemical Limited. And the reason that it's not written about a lot is because the court case is in uh, Israel and all of the documentation in the court case is in Hebrew. So when I pull those things out, I have to go through the process to actually translate those and figure out what what's going on within that particular case um but the re but it makes it kind of unique because there's not a lot of people that are going to go through that effort to do the translation of hebrew so it's a niche that i can actually talk about israeli chemical but israeli chemical was a um it's a the background on this one is it's a chemical company with global operations that had grown through acquisition uh up into let's call it 2012. so they were really a conglomerate of independently operating chemical companies. And the transformation foundation was if we put these companies together and call, let's say, unify the back office, there should be a lot of synergies as an organization that we should be able to capture that didn't come out of these acquisitions. Yeah. The original project cost was intended to be about $120 million. When they got about a year and a half, maybe two years into the program, the cost had ballooned to almost a half a billion dollars. So they had put in, let's call it a uh, their first implementation. They were getting ready to put into the second implementation. And that's when the ripcord got pulled that said we can no longer support this. And this one's really interesting because the CEO got fired as a result of this implementation. And it's it certainly the foundation for failure can't be, we didn't have C-level executive support because this was his program. He was the one that was driving it, right? And that was one of the areas that actually I'll call it, that was, it, it's interesting from the aspect of, this was not a, we didn't have executive support as a failure for that. So I want to start with that one kind of as a as a foundation. Hmm. Um, When we, when I look at the history of this one, going all the way back to the beginning, one of the big decisions that this company made that I say, put them on the route to failure to begin with, is they didn't RFP the, the actual program. They were working with SAP and IBM kind of on a sole source basis. They took the estimate from both of those firms. And they use that as a foundation for the business case to go forward to the board, right? In those particular scenarios, one of those things that we found um, is you would think that the, the systems integrator in a sole source environment would be motivated to give you um, a higher price rather than a lower price because there's are no competition. But in fact, it often works in reverse. The systems integrator will give you a lower price point because they know what the hurdle rate is in order to be able to get the project approved, right? Once they get that contract signed, right? Then we'll worry about what the real price is going to be because we're already locked in. We already got 70 people working on the project. It's not like you likely you're going to change and we'll worry about that problem later, right? So the choice not to go out to RFP actually created a scenario where Israeli chemical saw a lower price point than what was probably going to be. And if they had gone out to RFP and multiple people would have been bidding on it, they would have understood the range of possibility associated with a program like this because somebody would have probably came in and give them gave them kind of the real number. Right. Does that makes sense right yeah.
0: So, so it's, it's sort of the opposite way you you would think but i guess that makes sense you, you you want to be below the threshold and you also don't want to create any alarms or or give them a reason to want to go to rfp by having a higher price tag that may right. not answer the customer wants to hear
3: yeah and i it, you know it's it's you know i'm going to deviate here for a second it's one of the things I, you know i i refer to it as the sap but it's also the oracle death star right the the initial estimate that you get on any project There isn't a single person that's motivated to give you a higher number, right? SAP is going to give you a low number. Accenture, IBM, your systems integrator is going to give you a low number. Your business sponsor wants a low number because it's going to make their business case better, right? All your project team is going to have an optimism bias to say, hey, we can get this done for a lower number. Right. And your CEO wants it low, your chief financial officer wants it low. I even blame part of this on I'm going to call it your parents. Right. And say, well, how do your parents get involved? Well, your parents probably told you when you were young. That you can do anything that you put your mind to right so now you've got these low numbers and you've got this in the back of your mind right that said i should be able to do this even your high school coach probably told you yeah we could take that big guy so everything at the very beginning of a project is driving you to a lower number than probably what's realistic right and that scenario really kind of amplifies itself when you do a sole source bid
0: There's a weird uh, kind of human behavior thing at play there that's it's hard to hard to overcome for a people. Yeah,
3: exactly right. So that's kind of the first mistake that is Israeli Chemical made. Okay, now the second mistake that they made was, and and I say the the concept of a single global instance with single global processes that are going to address all of their multiple business units. Okay, Um, while that. Well, that decision is not a failed decision. What happened at this company was the CEO made that decision, right? Without bringing his operating committee, let's say the the layer below him in for the ride that they hadn't holistically bought into the common set of processes across our organization. And he was driving it as kind of a singular agenda of the CEO, right so the Mm -hmm. operating team hadn't bought into this whole thing and they they ultimately were not working with him right but they were working their own thing and it was oh by the way this is a ceo's project he's got that going and it's on the side right so that global operating model actually worked against them because the rest of the organization wasn't bought into right working toward that local model and so they met a lot of resistance i'll call it in the field, in that space, right. So that's kind of bad decision number two. The third bad decision that they made was who they put in charge of the project to begin with, right? Now I know everybody's going to say, "Well, he's probably going to say they put an IT guy in charge, right?" But they, but they didn't. They put the they put the heir apparent to the CFO in charge, right? So they put a finance guy in charge of the program, but the finance guy had a focus on, I'll call it financial efficiency, right? And not business operation efficiency. And his immediate bias on the program was financial, meaning we need to hit, obviously be able to roll up numbers for the organization. That's what we need in a common ERP system. But his mindset was also on budget and schedule for the program. Because that's what he knew and understood as metrics, right, of a good program. So now the project is being purely measured on budget and schedule as it's being raised up to the organization. And, you know, when I look at a project, that's the third thing that I'm worried about is budget and schedule. First thing I'm worried about is operational continuity. Second thing I'm worried about is benefit. Third thing I'm worried about is, you know, budget and schedule. When you put that budget and schedule at the top, it immediately starts to drive bad behavior in terms of the other two right in terms of what it creates right so the positioning of that initial guy uh cfo that's kind of bad decision number three because you've got a i'll call it the wrong behavior on the program i'll call it bad decision number four right as they were going through this project they completely restructured the organization and they change the setup of the organization and right the legal entity structure of the organization so anybody that knows anything about SAP or Oracle or those areas the company hierarchy that you set up at the very beginning right if you change that hierarchy in the middle of the project right well you know i you know i heard somebody say that SAP and Oracle are very flexible but it's kind of like flexible like wet cement Right. You know, once it once it sets up. Right. It's really, really hard to change. So now they've got this restructuring that they've got to do. And in the middle of the program, they've got to kind of pivot and redesign the organization inside of the program. So that's kind of bad decision number four. Right. Mm -hmm. Then you get into, okay, now we're behind schedule. Right. Now we've got issues, uh, you know, with the um, I'll call it budget and schedule or budget we're behind schedule, budget and schedule. How do you catch up? Well, simple, we just take out a testing cycle, right? So they took out a complete testing cycle in the implementation. Now they take out this testing cycle when they go live, right, with their first implementation, all they have is operational problems, right? Operational problems, operational problems, operational problems. And at that point in time, that's when the board got involved and said, this project is going to be a disaster, pull the ripcord, CEO gets fired, Right? and they go back to, we're just going to operate in this independent fashion. Now, I spent a lot of time kind of talking about the the bad decisions here, Um, and, and what you didn't hear me do is blame any of this on the systems integrator. Right. Because the systems integrator, by and large, was just along for the ride. If you want to put fault on the systems integrator, it was the initial bid that they had provided. Right. Not their ability to execute to the plan that had laid out. Right. And so to a certain extent, I think they kind of laid in wait, which a lot of them do. (laughs) Right. Because they know where the client's going to fail and then say, oh, by the way,
0: it's not our fault. All right, we're here with John Belden from Upper Edge talking about why ERP implementations fail. We've got a lot more to cover, but first we're going to take a quick break. We'll be back with more Transformation Ground Control.
2: I'm excited to share our newly released 2024 Digital Enterprise Operations Report. This free download is available on the Third Stage website at thirdstage-consulting.com. This report is truly packed full of technology independent and agnostic insights for your project to ensure that you're strategically optimized for success. Download your copy today with the QR code in front of me or visit our website for more details.
0: Hello, welcome back to transformation ground control episode number 155 my name is eric kimberling your host for today you can find new episodes of this show every wednesday at transformationgroundcontrol.com. the show is sponsored by third stage consulting an independent consulting firm that helps clients with digital transformations and it's produced by major tom productions we're here with john Belden from Edge talking about why erp implementations fail let's jump back into the conversation i mean that operational uh disruption after go live that that value or that undermining a value or whatever you want to call it negative business benefits that come out right. of that is so massive. And and when you, you, when you think about on this side of the equation, you've got your cost and then this is the sort of the value we expect to get. Okay. Congratulations. You drove the cost down on the implementation, but now you can't ship product for, you know, three months or whatever, what
3: Exactly. That, what's that cost to you? And, and that's- exactly. Right. And that's one of those components that, you know, that we talk about, maybe we'll talk about in the future is this value erosion component. Right. Because value erosion on an SI, you know, there's a cost component. Are you getting the value out of the SI? But if you put in something that's a bad implementation, right, the cost associated with the recovery of that bad implementation, um, you know, that can burn you as well. I mean, you know about the uh, the national grid example, right? I mean, right. the cost of the recovery of national grid was more than the cost of the project itself, right? Yeah. so so that I mean that's just complete value erosion. Um, you know, all, all together on that one.
0: Why do you, you, I don't know if you have a good answer for this. I don't, but I'm curious if you have a thought on this, but why is it that organizations don't really seem to think about the, the value after the fact they're so focused on time, cost, schedule, all the stuff you just described, but why is that? I mean, Uh, I think,
3: you know, it's, (laughs) I, I look at, I look at the C level. Let's, let's just look at the C level attention, right. Associated with the program. The C-level attention for me goes through Carol. You just went on video just so you know yep. <laughs> um, the C-level attention goes through three phases, right? Phase number one is all focused on value, right? Which is what's the business case for, that we're going to get out of this? Where's the value going to come from this, et cetera, et cetera? What's that business case? And once that project gets approved, right? then it focuses and it comes into budget and schedule right and the reason from my perspective that it goes to budget and schedule is because the project managers when they start getting asked how are you going to measure this project it's the only thing that they can elevate immediately to the senior teams right it's the only numbers that are available we got to go in and talk to them about something what are we going to talk to them about let's talk about budget and schedule because that's what we know Now you've raised that up to the level of the key KPIs to the senior team that you can't avoid talking about it as the first thing, because you personally as the project manager have created this, right, as the first thing. And that's what that senior team understands. And now that's what they've been conditioned to expect, right? Right. So you're going through that that second phase of budget and schedule. Now, when you get close to the go-live, right? All of a sudden, operational continuity becomes the most important thing because those guys at the, I'll call it at the top now, are scared to death, right? That you're going to put this system in and what's it going to do to me? And so now this operational continuity comes raining down on the project team and the project team now has to fix, or at least try to fix all of those things and all of those sins that they've committed, right? when they were doing budget and schedule and the SI then will react and say, hey, you know, we made all these decisions. You're asking us to do a bunch of stuff that we had already planned on not doing. Guess what that means? Change order. (laughs) Okay." and they just sat there and laid in wait. Right. So it kind of goes through phases based upon, you know, what's happening in our program. And part of what I encourage my clients to do right is when you launch a project, you talk about all three of those things immediately from the get-go. You raise all of those up. You raise operational continuity. You raise value. You raise budget. And you report on that every single steering committee in some fashion to make sure that that steering committee, you know, has now been conditioned to think about all three of those things right from the get-go.
0: Yeah. Yeah, it's a great point, a great way to sort of reprioritize the way we're often conditioned to think, especially, you know, the whole project management field, the whole discipline of project management is really focused on, you know, project controls and costs and staying on budget on schedule. So we're all kind of conditioned to exactly that, that's our metric of success. But what you're saying is it's, that's a metric of success, but it's not the most important. It's not the only one.
3: Right, but it but it be it's the one that tends to drive. Right. The, the other the other factors, right? I mean, another thing I recommend to my clients is they keep three risk matrices, right? They keep an operational continuity risk matrix, they keep a value risk matrix, and they keep an op, a project operating matrix. Most people work in this project operating matrix, right? But if you're going to make, if you're going to make adjustments, right? In your project operating matrix that says, we're going to make this decision, it should drive you to look at the other two matrices and say, what's the impact on those other two matrices as a result of making this project decision? If we're going to lower, right, if we're going to say we're, we're not going to have this high price, $300 an hour guy, we're going to go and lower the cost to a $200 an hour guy. OK, that's going to solve your project budget issue. But what's it going to do on your value issue? right? Is that guy critical to that? Is that guy critical? Has he done implementations before, right? Is it going to put a negative context in that? So I always encourage them to keep three matrices on their risk log, project, value, operational continuity.
0: Yeah, that's interesting. And it it keeps the attention on those important things. Exactly,
3: right. It allows you to continue to have that as an agenda item with your steering committee. Now,
0: what about this concept of the, uh, the system integrator being along for the ride. That was an interesting choice of words. You know, a lot of us expect, and a lot of clients expect that the SI is the expert they're going to come in, they're going to do everything. And, yeah. you know, on the flip side, on, on the other extreme, those SIs that take complete control without being transparent and that sort of thing, that creates a whole other set of problems that we might get to today. But what, what is this going along for the ride phenomenon? Should yeah. we have a reasonable expectation? How do you, how do you manage that?
3: Yeah, so that's, a, I mean, that's a, it's another great question. But if you think about, and for those that are familiar with very large programs, right, um, the accountability for delivery, right, shifts from the systems integrator to the client in the back half of the program. And, and I'm going to refer to accountability for delivery as these things: who's responsible for the cleanliness of the data, right? Ultimately, it's the client. Who's responsible for making sure that the that the the people get trained that's the client who's responsible for establishing the tactics associated with putting in the deployment plan right that's normally the client who's responsible for making sure that all the equipment gets to the site that needs to get to the site so that i can do my you know kind of the edge that's the client all of those responsibilities right occur or at least become really really visible at the end of the project right So the systems integrator is largely responsible for the build, right? The configuration, the building of the RICEFs, right? Putting together, let's call it the test plan, but the client's ultimately responsible for the testing. Again, backside, right? So if a systems integrator waits long enough, right? And hides, let's call it their inability to deliver on some of those things in the build. If they wait long enough, right? They can almost count on the client failing to deliver on that back half, right? And when the client fails to deliver on the back half, now the systems integrator can say, oh, it wasn't our fault that we went live. It was your fault, Mr. Client, that we didn't go live. So therefore we're going to extend the project by three months. And what happens with me as the systems integrator, I now get the opportunity to fix all of the problems that I had, right? On your dime because you agreed that it was your issue that we went late, right? So, you know, right. you just sit there and kind of lie. If they wait long enough, right, it will become the client's fault.
0: Yeah, that's a that's a interesting but concerning point you right raised there with that whole thing. And you know, we have uh another guest we have on the show in the past is, is a, an attorney named Marcus Harris, and he's yeah, uh, I know him, I, I know who he is, yeah. He's an attorney. He focuses on, uh, for the audience, he's an attorney that focuses on uh, negotiation and and the legal aspect of uh, ERP projects. And he he and I have talked about failure as well. But what's interesting about what you just described and relating it back to contracts is that everything you just described that is the client's responsibility, oftentimes you you have these massive documents of statements of work and contracts, MSAs, and all that stuff. But what you just described is like a simple little bullet, it's just a bullet of an assumption. That that's the client responsibility. It's almost like, oh yeah, here's all the stuff we're going to do, and by the way, you're going to do datum. You're going to do the data exactly. Mining.
3: It's like, well, yeah. it's just one. It's one. It's just one thing we have to do, right? But it's, you, it's the it's things. the it's the R versus a C in a racey. Right. Who's, you know, and it can come down to that. Right. So that's part of, you know, again, that's part of what we do as an organization when we're looking at those, yeah, we'll help people with their contracts, but we look at those contracts and we try to draw their attention to, right. All of those things that they were responsible for. And then making sure that, you know, when we're looking at their plans, they understand that accountability because the systems integrator is going to drive you to those areas of responsibility that the client needs to assist them with in order for them to achieve their contract. Right. Right. They're not going to drive you to, are you thinking about your data over there? Are you thinking about your data over there? They're not going to point that out in a heavy fashion until it gets to the end of the contract. Right. And you know, then I'm going to say now they might be saying they're doing it the right thing for you, but there's a mutual benefit to them, which is, Oh, by the way, now you recognize your own poor performance. Right. Right. And it's not our fault. And maybe I'm cynical about this whole thing right now, but I've but I've seen so many of them. Right. And that's kind of where the practice comes in of, you know, maximizing the value of the systems integrator, understanding how they behave. Right. And when you understand how you behave, then you can put things in place to be able to say, okay, let's make sure that we're not letting them get out of this box too early. Right.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Great. Great point. And I'm, I'm I share that cynicism with you. I'm very cynical when it comes to this stuff too. Although I do have to ask you, what you know that dynamic you described of the system integrator doing all that work up front, and that's where they make a lot of their revenue, and then sort of at the back half is where the client responsibilities pick up, and usually they trip up, and then you can blame the client. Is that by design, or is that just sort of a coincidence that that's just how these
3: projects are structured? Or- no, I don't know. I, I'm I'm not going to well. the 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 the, the things at the end are naturally the client's responsibilities anyway right you can't you can't shy away from that right right i think it's more along the lines of the systems integrators are obviously managing to their own contract right i mean that so that's clear right they're not going to put themselves in a position to 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 not make money Hmm. they're also not necessarily in a position where it's always to their advantage right, to notify the client. They'll notify them. Yeah, they'll notify the client, but they're not going to make a huge big deal out of it because there's always that. That's not our risk to manage. Yeah. Right. That's not our risk to manage. Now, having said that, (laughs) the contract structure does drive the systems integrators behavior, because if you're sitting on a fixed price contract, Right. Versus, let's say, a time of material staff augmentation contract. Well, now the systems integrator is going to be up there pointing as soon as they, you know, right away that says, hey, you're you have problems over here. You have problems over here. You have problems over here because I can bring in resources to fill those things. And that's the way that I generate additional profitability. Right. Right. So the contract structure does drive behavior. Right. On the on the systems integrator with the way that they think about the client.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And, and you you mentioned the word fixed bid contract and, um, you know, especially in the public, you know, government entities and uh, big, large corporations, they oftentimes will have these very robust RFP processes and they want fixed bid and they sort of use their leverage to demand fixed bid from their SIs. And it feels like, you know, when I do that, I feel like I'm creating predictability and I'm, I'm max or I'm, uh, I'm capping the total cost of this project. But it creates so much bad behavior. I mean, some of the biggest failures I've seen are fixed bid contracts. I don't know about you, but
3: it's yeah. I mean, does it does? I don't want to say that I don't like fixed bid contracts because there's a time and a place for them, right? Especially if you can, you know, the smaller the length of time that you can put your fixed bid contract around, the better off you are. Right. The longer you stretch it out, the worse it is because there's more bad things that can happen to you. Right. And more uncertainty on your side to let them get out of jail free on that fixed bid contract but you know value erosion the, the first step in value erosion comes when you go from that proposal to the contract itself right because all the you, you cannot hold your systems integrator accountable to their, their proposal you can only hold them accountable to their contract right and that first step of taking that, that proposal and sticking it into the contract itself is the first step in value erosion, because all of a sudden you'll see deliverables floating away. You'll see new assumptions coming into play. You'll see, you know, you'll see a different, I'm going to say, you'll see a, a different, perhaps a different staff, right. than what was actually sold to you. Right. So that, that, that's a, that's an area of kind of first step of value erosion is that, transfer that transfer of proposal to contract mm. uh and that's a tough hurdle to get over because once you've accepted that now the systems integrator is going to play the game they, they can play the i'm going to call it they can play the long game here right because the vendor now, or the client now wants to get started on this project we picked our systems integrator we got our budget approved right and and oh by the way now we have to sign the contract Well, the systems integrator knows the pressure that's on the client in order to be able to start that project, right? The client will start to make compromises to get that deal signed, right, in order to be able to get that program launched because the systems integrator, right, will kind of sit there and say, I can't start until I have paper. Then you end up with this, well, let's just sign a letter of intent. Right. And we'll get started on the program. I'll bring in my 25, my 25 guys to get started. You're just lost. You have no leverage now (laughs) right, to to be able to drive those things in. So it is a tricky game between RFP acceptance and actual contract signature.
0: Yeah, yeah, that's That's a really interesting point, because that dynamic, just the stuff that gets slipped in there, the that that one bullet item, the assumption that you're going to handle data migration or that you're going to do all the end user training. It's just one little line in a, in a contract, but man, they have huge. Well, and the,
3: and the and from my perspective, Eric, the single biggest gotcha line that most people don't even think about is client will make decisions in a timely basis, right? it's, It's so innocuous, right? It's so innocuous, but what clients don't understand is the volume of decisions that need to be made on an ERP implementation. No, no, most of them have never faced the volume of decisions that are going to need to be made. Right. It's not what they do. They make decisions that are most of the time that are well formed decisions that they make every day. I got to choose this. I got to choose this. I know what the path is. Then you're sitting here with a set of decisions which are kind of organizational looking five years out, six years out. How do we want to operate? They're not prepared to make that volume of decisions at that level. Right. And all of a sudden, all of those decisions now need to be escalated because that's not my pay grade to make that decision. Right. And all of a sudden, right, they get raised up. Everything slows down to a crawl. Systems integrator says, eh, yeah, you're not making the decisions at the pace that we agreed. Change order. <laughs> right. And it's just a simple line in there. We'll make decisions in a timely basis.
0: Or that, you know, the flip side or the, the uh, alternative to what you just described it just to prove the point that there's no easy way out of that being backed in that corner is you could say okay well um we'll just go ahead and go with the path of least resistance which is to build the software the way we're doing things today which you totally exactly right then why are you implementing new technology if you
3: exactly right so so one of the things that we've done as a tactic in those in, in you know to make those quick decisions okay um as a counter to that that systems integrator, you will make efficient decisions. As a counter to that, what we've required in, in contracts and with the systems integrators is to say, the systems integrators will provide X number of days or whatever the number is, you know, uh, four weeks notice on major decisions that need to be made, right? So, so they've got to create the visibility of mm-hmm. that, right? And, on steering committees will provide a forecast to steering committees of the decisions that need to be made on a timely basis kind of rolling forward because from my perspective the ultimate I'll call it elixir for making decisions on time is lead time Mm -hmm. right the more time that I have to make a decision as an executive the higher quality decision it's gonna be because I'm gonna have time to at least socialize that, talk to my people about it. So the more lead time that you can create to make decisions, the better decision that you're gonna make. And then you have to force the systems integrator in certain cases contractually to say, you're gonna give me the lead time because they already know the inventory of decisions that you're gonna have to make, you know? But what's their motivation to show you that early? Zero. Right. Zero.
0: Well, and sometimes they don't know, you know, sometimes they're not even on top yeah. of the plan ahead,
3: which is enough. Yeah. yeah. And now and now I would and now I would tell you now, tell Eric, don't make excuses for them. Right. right. They, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. They they, they, they know 90 percent of those decisions. right? Well, they should, if they don't know, they should know. So I'm
0: not. Yeah. Don't get me wrong. I'm not making excuses. They should know. And if they, if right. they don't then that's a whole other
3: problem. Yeah, but it's, but it's really kind of putting them in a position that says you got to create the visibility of that. Once that visibility is there, the decisions that have to be made, now the client can look at that inventory and they can make a decision. Do I actually have the right people on the steering committee, right? right? Because Because you can take that key decision inventory and use it to pressure test your steering committee and say, do I have the people on the steering committee that I trust as an organization to make these decisions? Because if I don't, change the steering committee, right? Because right. that's what's going to cause that to be able to go fast. So key decision inventory actually becomes a really good tool to pressure test your steering committee
0: with. All right, we're here with John Belden from Upper Edge talking about why ERP implementations fail. We've got a lot more to cover, but first we're going to take a quick break. We'll be back with more Transformation Ground Control.
2: Interested in working for a company that truly values your unique skills and experience? Here at Third Stage, we don't hire based on resumes alone. We look at the full candidate experience and willingness to provide excellent service for our clients. Within a technology independent and agnostic consulting firm, you have the opportunity to learn across industries with a diverse group of clients. Our consultants also have the opportunity to diversify their portfolio and learn across technology systems. If you're interested in joining a high growth entrepreneurial organization, please reach out to us at work at thirdstage consulting.com.
0: Hello, welcome back to Transformation Ground Control, episode number 155. My name is Eric Kimberling, your host for today. You can find new episodes of this show every Wednesday at transformationgroundcontrol.com. The show is sponsored by Third Stage Consulting, an independent consulting firm that helps clients with digital transformations. And it's produced by Major Tom Productions. We're here with John Belden from Edge talking about why ERP implementations fail. Let's jump back into the conversation. Question here is, uh, is it a bad idea and a reason to fail if a company gets more than a single ERP? So if I go with a single ERP, Am I less likely to fail than if I do a best of breed and get a separate CRM HCM? And, you know, more actually,
3: I, I actually, was so that's. I mean, it's a great question. We're actually seeing more. Let's call it mixed implementations now. More, more um, combination of digital core, right, coming from the primary ERP vendors, right, whether it be Oracle or, or SAP or or whoever, along with kind of the best of breed attached to the outside we're seeing more of that um and i think some one of the things that's driving that is i think a lot of companies are taking an approach especially in the sap space on where they're sitting on an ecc platform right they know they're going to have to go to s4 but part of their migration strategy to go to s4 is to i'm going to call it de-risk what they've currently got in that ECC platform by taking out certain capabilities that are buried in the ECC platform putting them into a best of breed right that i can connect to the ECC platform and then when i get ready to upgrade the amount that i'm actually having to upgrade is less than it was before right so mm-hmm. it's a, it's a way to kind of de-risk the migration while i might be just pick, while i might be picking up the value of where the big value add actually is In going to that next platform. So we're seeing, so we're seeing companies kind of decouple the core of their ERP and what was in there before and taking that best of breed. And it doesn't necessarily have to come from that same software provider.
0: How about this? Let me, uh, not in defense of the vendors, but let me use their talking point here to see your, your, you shouldn't do that because you, you want a single system fully integrated. You've got a single throat to choke. You don't want to have to deal with all the integration and data issues. You just want us you just want that single platform from us
3: Mm -hmm. why why would you do that uh and from a technology point of view i would have no no issues with that argument right Right. from my ability to make choices and and again now i'm going to talk from a pure from a pure negotiator point of view right Uh, i've lost all my leverage i have zero leverage whatsoever going forward in the future right so it's like i don't even think i want to put myself in that position just for that For that particular point right so i get nervous from a leverage position um i could i'll give you i'll give you the quote of the 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 ultimate failure of that right um have you ever heard uh, this the story about a company called there's oregon oregon state right cover oregon was their program and it was to put in the replacement for or, or the it was a substitute for the Obamacare provided by the central government. Each state had a choice, right? Do you want to use the national platform or do you want to use your own platform? Okay. The state of Oregon decided that it was going to use that it was going to do its own. They were putting in Obamacare. They put in also their, their healthcare systems. They decided to replace them all. They went wall to wall, everything, Oracle, completely, right? And the logic was well it's all coming from oracle it all works together right but you can't find a single client that uses all of those oracle products together right in mm-hmm. that in that kind of a configuration so while the logic makes sense right that yeah. was a huge failure they spent 300 million dollars didn't take one application <laughs> didn't take one application. There's a lot of problems with that one. I could go on and on and on with a, with that one. That was a, that. that's a classic. Unbelievable.
0: Yeah, yeah. And, and, you know, even from a technical perspective, you look at, uh, you know, SAP is the one that drives me the most crazy when they say this, but they say we've got the fully integrated solution. You're on the S4 HANA platform, blah, blah, blah. But really, if you look at what they've got, I mean, they've got yes, they've got S4 HANA, but then they've got um, Concur. They've got SuccessFactors. Right. For- and they've they've gone out and acquired all these other point solutions that aren't integrated it's no different just went out and bought a random hcm or whatever uh, system you know now certainly over time sure maybe they start to integrate a little bit better and start to merge the things together but um, vendors like sap will say that but in, in their practical reality of implementing, even from a technical perspective. A lot of times it's not even true that you've got a fully integrated solution to your.
3: No. And what and what and what really SAP really offers in that space is it's not fully integrated, but we have people that have done this integration, you know, a thousand times. So we have a core set of expertise in terms of actually making that connection work. Right. That that becomes their that becomes their value prop. Not that not that it's fully integrated, but we have people that we know how they can make it work. Right. Right. Because you're going to pay for that. Yeah,
0: yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Um so uh you know, similar kind of question here, but maybe a little bit different, but um but it's a little bit different from that single ERP versus better best-of-breed uh question and whether or not that contributes to failure. But what about um niche solutions, you know, more industry vertically focused solutions versus the big broad ERP systems? Do you do you see any correlation yeah. there between Yeah, those?
3: actually actually from a, from a research point of view. Okay. When you're, when you're dealing with that, a niche area, let's just, let's just say I'm going to, let's say I'm dealing with plant maintenance. Just take that as an example. Cause that's often, that's often an area that comes out of the ERP system and you're going to put in Maximo or you're going to put in something like that for plant maintenance. We actually don't see as many failures in that space. Right. And, and the reason I'll say isn't because it's a niche solution. It's because It's a niche process within the company itself that you tend to have singular decision makers, people who can make that decision in this Mm -hmm. space, and you're not having to get procurement, supply chain, finance, and all of those other people to agree on what the answer is. Right? So you're actually able to make decisions faster and they're not nearly as complicated, right? As if I'm trying to do HR, finance, payroll, right? Supply chain, and my commercial systems all at the same time. Now you're dealing with Now you're dealing with what I'm going to refer to as wicked, messy problems, right? Because you're, you're dealing with really technical, complex problems, but you're also dealing with organizational issues, right? And when you put those two things together, right? The problem solving time becomes much more extended and the authority of who gets to make the decision is much less well understood. Right. So it's not necessarily the niche project that makes it successful. It's the scope of the implementation across the organization. From my perspective, that causes the issue. Interesting.
0: Yeah, that's super interesting. And I, I'd agree with that, too. I, I don't know that I have thought of it in that exact way. But, uh, you know, certainly if you do an HCM implementation or CRM, that is going to just go faster by definition, partly because it's a smaller scope, but also because of what you're saying, which is the you know less decision making complexity that goes into that.
3: Exactly. Right. The, you know, who gets to make the decision is much clearer. Right. Right. It, it's much it's much clearer in those areas. Uh, and the accountability for value is it's is much clearer. Right. Yeah, exactly.
0: I, I don't know why I thought of it. That that question from the audience member about that uh, singles or the focus solution versus the broader solution triggered this thought. Uh, what about agile? You know, agile. uh yeah sorry <laughs> <laughs> I have a similar opinion on this but I'm
3: curious what <laughs> oh my it god oh. Like. so so if they're if they're okay now I'm going to be really really opinionated here right <laughs> if there if there is one thing that absolutely drives me out of my mind right is the concept of we're going to do an agile ERP implementation right because you know listen you know agile works great if you're dealing with, you know, a, a product that you are going to be developing that you're going to implement that doesn't necessarily exist today, an add-on, right? But when you are replacing right, what you already have, you know, there, there's no, there's no, oh, by the way, we're just, we're just going to skip finance today, right? We're going to, it, it didn't make the backlog. We can't put it in. You have to connect all of the dots, right? You have to connect. You know, it's like a doctor going in and say, we're going to do agile surgery no you know if he runs out of time if he runs out of time you know we forgot to suture him up in there but we ran out of time and money it was agile no you gotta you gotta tie everything off right so erp agile maybe there's agile ways to do the delivery and set up what you need to build and and you know and, and execute on that but you can't you can't say i'm going to just time box myself into and deliver what i can with agile for an erp so i'm sorry i was really opinionated on that but it's like no (laughs) well i I have similar
0: opinions on that it's almost like uh you know where agile does work and i think where people maybe have blurred the lines too much is like with a really innovation focused company like apple you know they've got a product that they market research isn't even uncovering a need for it but they want to get something out to the market to test it out and see if people want that, if there's any demand for it, or learn how to,
3: you know, they're, they're, the extend, they're extending the capabilities of what they already have, right? Yeah. Not replacing something that already exists. Yeah. Right. And When you're in that, like I said, when you're in that replacement mode, you've got to tie everything off. You can't, you can't yeah. do it fast.
0: <laughs> well, it's almost, you know, whenever I hear someone say on one hand, we're going to uh, create a common operating model. We're going to standardize a our company and we're also going to do an agile implementation right there that's a huge disconnect and those two things are an immediate yeah
3: exactly One hundred percent agreement on that right what the other thing that agile does and it's great for the systems integrators it's really really hard environment to get an accountability model set up in an agile space with the systems integrator right because what are you measuring them on right it's almost like i got to figure out how i'm going to quantify the backlog and you're going to deliver the backlog but now you're always in the in the in the space of well, grooming the backlog. Things are coming in, things are coming out. How are you going to hold them accountable to something that's in that space? It's a really tough it's a really tough contracting environment uh for the client. Great contracting environment for the systems integrator.
0: Yeah, it's a it's a built in excuse for why something doesn't work. It yeah. what's I'm the whole point of agile. Is you, I'm going to put something out there, and if it doesn't work, I'm going to fix it. <laughs> so yeah, right there,
3: yeah, you know, and and we we and we met schedule and we met, you know, we we did budget and schedule. We met, but the what you got delivered may not meet your expectations of did I actually get the value out of it? Now all of the agile, you know, bigots out there are going to come back and say, oh, blah 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 blah, you know. Yeah. But you know, ERP implementation with agile, yeah, yeah. it, I, I, agile techniques not agile methodology holistically yeah. yeah that's a that's a good way
0: to put it and selectively I think you use that word too just selectively right. and where appropriate but not a broad-based yeah RP transformation um this this session I'll be honest is flying by I didn't realize we we're already almost an hour into the discussion but uh there's a lot we could talk about probably well, you can probably
3: have me probably. back again sometime Eric
0: I may have to because I'm not going to get through even all my questions and <laughs> other questions here but um I guess, let me, uh, maybe a good place to sort of bring this full circle. I know we've talked about a little bit, we've scratched the surface of the whole um, operational disruption and the the operational stability piece of it. Um, We've talked about cost and schedule, but let's talk about this concept of uh, the value erosion a little bit more. Maybe just help unpack that a little bit more. I think that kind of brings us full circle. in the
3: Yeah. Yeah. So, so, you know, the first piece of, you know, when we think about value erosion, we think about value erosion from two aspects, right? One is, is exactly like you said, right? It's, it's, well, if you're going to pay a hundred dollars for a solution, right? You measure value by the cost versus what did I ultimately get out of it? Right. What was what was the expected business benefits and value erosion can occur in one of two ways. Right. It can occur by um, it cost me more to deliver than what I expected it to occur. Right. Or it can occur by I spent what I expected and I didn't get nearly the value out of it that I anticipated. Right. So value erosion can occur in one of those one of those two ways. If I look at programs in general, And you think about that concept of value erosion we typically see anywhere between 30 and 50 percent of value erosion on these big programs either a they're not delivering all the value or b they're going over budget and they're and they're spending way more than what they thought they were going to spend right and that's not an exaggeration i mean you you yourself would know if i said hey what's the average overrun of spending on a program right it's going to be in that 25 percent range right well there's 25 value erosion right there and then right. if you ask yourself did they actually get all of the you know did they fully implement everything that they thought they were going to implement I would guarantee you they probably overspent and under implemented but they're only talking about the 25 budget overrun they're not talking about the value that they didn't get right so it's not a hard leap to go into that 30 to 50 percent of value erosion right when right. you jump into a when you jump into this thing right so You know, when we think about value erosion, we think about it in three sections. Bid to launch, right? So from the time that you receive that RFP to the time that you actually sign a contract, right? What value actually erodes in that space? Sometimes it's the contract. Sometimes it's the assumptions that you're making on your own ability to deliver the project, right? That that I can tell you right out of the gate. Um, you know, if the systems integrators say are saying, well you need to provide 20% of the resources and we're going to provide 80%, well I know right out of the bat that that's an invalid assumption. It's never going to work that way, right? right. So you can tell right from the get-go that there's going to be value erosion right, right out of the gate just because of the way that it's set up, right? So part of it is hi- trying to protect the client right out of the gate that says you need to understand what the cost is going to be real cost before you sign up for this thing because there's already a 20 percent cost increase coming that you don't know about right right Um, then then i would call value erosion i'm going to call it from launch to go life and it's kind of all the crap that goes on during the course of the execution right that the the systems integrator to a certain extent is taking advantage of you're not making decisions fast right or you know oh god the the great one is we're going to come in and do a quality audit, right? We're going to do a quality audit and we're going to identify all the problems that the client is having, right, as a part of this as a part of this quality audit. And all of a sudden you've taken the attention away from actually delivering on the program itself, right, and setting the foundation to give you a change order in the future because you haven't corrected those things. Right. Right. So that's that's another space of that. Hmm. And then I'm going to say another area is just this whole contingency utilization what you just talked about on the fixed bid, right? Whenever you do a fixed bid, there's typically a certain percentage, right? Of the bid itself, which is the the assumption that the systems integrator is going to bear some of the risk, right? Try to get them to show you once you've signed that fixed bid, right? Where they're actually assuming that risk and where they're spending the additional money on your behalf In order to be able to implement the program you know it doesn't work like it doesn't work like insurance where you pay your risk premium and then they give you a detailed readout of everything that they paid for on your behalf doesn't work like that right (laughs) you know so you know the fact that you can't hold your systems integrators accountable for utilizing that contingency that you paid them to utilize right how do you actually you know that's value erosion because it's almost like you get just gave them away ten percent Right. It's almost right. like it's not almost it's not like it's fixed cost You're treated like it's fixed profit. Right. Right. It's a fixed profit contract. And then, you know, kind of the last section is what happens in from deploy to hyper care. Right. Lots of companies define hyper care as well. well hyper care often is is defined as a period of time not a set of conditions that you need to yeah. exit, right? That says, yes, we got everything right, right? So, you know, how many times have we seen a go live go in where the systems integrator knew that there was a lot of problems before the go live, right? Went into HyperCare, said hyper care is six weeks or four weeks. We're going to fix all the major problems that we can fix within that period. And then we're going to turn that over to your AMS team to fix, right? right? So you really didn't get the full value of what you expected out of the systems integrator because they found a way to move it into hypercare and then out of their purview. Yeah.
0: Yeah. And then you have the whole dynamic, too, of where when you get past hypercare, that time-based hypercare that you're talking about, um, by then you're, you're either A, so exhausted from the implementation, you're just glad to move on to your day job or B, you're just moving on to the next phase of the project. If,
3: well, that's- it, and that's exactly right, because then they take a oh, shot. You just me all fired up. Right. But then they also take advantage of that. Right. Because while you're in the business of trying to fix all of the problems that exist, they'll drop that next SOW in front of you. Right. And they'll say, OK, we've got to get this signed in order to be able to move on to the next phase. You're so fatigued, you don't even want to look at those things anymore. Yeah. right and guess who has the leverage to move forward
0: yeah well and you, and then you think about value optimization so you, t- you talk about value erosion and then there's sort of the, the flip side which is how do you optimize not just don't erode it don't sure. lose it but how do you gain as much as you can and so many companies fail to spend that little bit of extra time and money at the end not just doing hyper care but yeah but optimizing like okay we're not getting the full value out of the system or let's dust off that business case we did, you know, two years ago when we started this project and see what kind of benefits we're actually realizing versus what we expected and figure out how to optimize that. If you, you know, and that's the level of effort and cost to go into that activity right there, I would argue is the highest ROI of anything you can do in a project because you get so much value out of that, but yet I, it, you're either too yeah. tired to do it or you're already moved on to the next. Yeah, and
3: what I also I like to say too, you know, when there's a lot of problems in the hyper care right you know the project's calling it hyper care but the business is referring it to hyperbolic right yeah. everything's freaking going crazy right <laughs> so we're in a, we're in the hyperbolic period of the program and the, the you know the the, the systems integrator just sitting there watching the clock run right because because they know they've got an exit strategy
0: right i'm gonna have to steal that line from you that's great that's brilliant hyperbolic versus hypercare <laughs> All right, thank you, John, great conversation, great takeaways and lessons there, and, and as we're gonna talk about here in some of these upcoming case studies throughout the rest of this episode, a lot of those lessons that uh, he mentioned here that John talked about um, are relevant to these next few case studies. These next few case studies, by the way, that we're gonna to get to uh, throughout this episode are gonna include Revlon, Haribo, and Little, um, three well-known global organizations. We're gonna get into those case studies, and then we're gonna have Wayne Holtham on the show later to talk about why SAP ERP implementations fail. But don't worry, even if you're not implementing SAP or implementing something else or you think you're going to implement something else in your organization, that discussion is extremely relevant regardless of what type of technology you're deploying. It just so happens that he's talking a bit more about uh, SAP projects in particular. So be sure to stick around. We're going to take a quick break. We'll be back with more Transformation Ground Control. Hi, this is Eric Kimberling with Third Stage Consulting and your host of Transformation Ground Control. I want to encourage you to read our guide to organizational change management. It's a free report or free guide that we published. It's one that I actually wrote that talks about best practices and lessons learned as it relates to change management. So as you know, on this podcast, we cover a lot of stuff related to the human sides of change, organizational change management, including training, communications, org design, all kinds of stuff as it relates to change management. So if you're trying to learn more about change management or you're looking for more direction and ideas on how to get started on your change management strategy and your overall journey, be sure to check out this guide. You can read it by scanning the QR code on the screen in front of you or in the links below for this particular podcast episode. You can find a link to uh, take you to the page that will allow you to register to go ahead and download that and read it for free. So be sure to check it out. It's the guide to organizational change management uh, written by yours truly. I hope you enjoy it. Let me know what you think, and hope you enjoy the rest of this episode. Life,
5: life,
0: Hello, welcome back to Transformation Ground Control, episode number 155. My name is Eric Kimberling, and you can find new episodes of this show every Wednesday at transformationgroundcontrol.com. You can also find past episodes of this show, all 154 past episodes, by going to transformationgroundcontrol.com. So this is the ERP failure episode where we talk about some of the case studies of failure in the ERP industry. And most importantly, we want to share what some of the lessons are and things that we can do differently in our projects. This next one we're going to get to is Revlon, which is a really interesting one, partially because it's an ERP failure discussion, which is always interesting, but also because the company, as as we'll talk about here in a moment, the company was going through some pretty significant restructuring and it was going through a merger Um, At the time of its implementation, it's just a good reminder. I like this case study because it's a good reminder that you really have to look at the political and organizational landscape of your organization when you're going through a digital transformation or ERP implementation because those political realities and those organizational and operational realities will inevitably affect your abilities to succeed, whether it means you need to slow the project down or whether you need to have a different strategy to accommodate whatever those landscapes are. And this case study, as we'll talk about here in a moment, is a good reminder that if you don't do that, you're going to run into headwinds that are almost impossible to overcome. So let's go ahead and roll the clip here. This is a video that I, I published actually quite some time ago, a few years ago on my YouTube channel. But again, even though it's uh, a few years old, the lessons here uh, are all very relevant and something we can take away and learn here in our, our uh, implementations here today. So let's roll the clip talking about the Revlon ERP failure and some of the lessons that go along with that. More recently, Hertz just recently announced a, a lawsuit against, against Accenture for their digital transformation failure. So some pretty big name companies are, are struggling with their digital transformations, which makes us wonder if those big companies with those types of resources are unable to muster up the, the knowledge and the maturity and the internal resources, external resources they have at their disposal to make their project successful. What does that mean for the rest of us? Those of us that aren't Fortune 500 companies, that don't have... Uh, the the war chest and the the cash and the resources and the maturity and the sophistication to be able to make these projects successful. The good news for for the rest of the world out there is that these are pretty easy mistakes to fix. These are in my opinion uh, unacceptable mistakes that should never have happened especially for a company of that size and, and a project of that size. Now just to set the backdrop what happened here with, with Revlon is when the um, when the failure first broke was because they had announced in their SEC filings, uh, first of all, that they couldn't file their financial reporting or they were gonna be late because of the SAP implementation. They couldn't get their hands on the numbers fast enough to file in time. And then the second phase, when they actually did report the results, they indicated that the SAP project was a failure. They had a bunch of write-offs and costs that were incurred as a result of that failure. And those two things combined caused the stock to drop 7% in one day and it also led to an investor lawsuit against the company. So pretty pretty major train wreck, extreme example of what not to do on your project, which is what makes these uh, tor- sorts of failures interesting to study is it, it gives us some insights as what not to do and more importantly, more importantly, what should we be doing to make our projects more successful? So the first lesson from this Revlon disaster, which you can read the entire blog via the link in the description below for this video on these on my YouTube channel, you can, f- you can t- take away from this that first of all, the implementation risk should have been well understood, they should have been well documented, they should have been well quantified, and ultimately they should have been mitigated. And none of those things apparently happened in this case. Probably the most telling uh, reason that I come to that conclusion is because when they went live in the first phase of their project, they went live at their South Carolina plant, which is one of their larger plants, apparently, and in that plant, once the once that plant went live on SAP, they weren't able to ship product. They weren't able to fulfill customer orders. They lost a lot of sales as a result of not being able to track customer orders. And keep in mind, Revlon's selling to major big box retailers and uh, people that probably have a pretty low tolerance for uh, for inability to ship. So I suspect that the the number of lost sales is pretty significant for these guys. And so in my mind, that's unacceptable. They should have never gone live. They should have caught these problems before they went live and they should have delayed the go live if that was the case. I'm not sure how they got to the decision to go ahead and go live anyway or if they even knew about the risks. So the third stage was not involved uh, in this uh, particular project. But it's it's really important to uh, make sure that you've, you have a, an effective risk uh, management and an effective risk mitigation process and mechanism in place to ensure that you don't go live and, and let those sorts of things happen and that's something that a technology agnostic consulting partner an advisory firm like third-stage consulting can provide as part of your SAP or ERP transformation so that's the first lesson is effective risk mitigation that didn't happen with Revlon if it doesn't happen with your project the chances are fairly high that you're gonna run into similar problems so that's a key is make sure that we've got effective risk mitigation in our in our overall transformation. The second thing is making sure that we have a clear vision for what our operating model is going to be and that we've worked through any sort of issues or misalignments with what that operating model is going to be. And that's okay that we have them, every company has them, especially when there's acquisition. In the case of Revlon, they had just acquired Elizabeth Arden which is another big company that they're trying to merge and integrate into the core Revlon operations. And there was apparently some misalignments and those operations were not integrating well at the time they're trying to overlay SAP on top of that. So it's no wonder that there were problems when those sorts of issues had not yet been worked through. So the lesson and takeaway here is make sure that we have a clear target operating model, clearly defined a business blueprint, not an SAP blueprint as, as SAP or your system integrator may refer to it, but a business blueprint for what our target operating model is going to be, what our organizational model is going to be. If we have a shared service model that we're moving towards, making sure that we've we've done that and we've, we've defined what that shared service model is, including our processes and roles and responsibilities, all that good stuff. That stuff should be figured out before you start implementing SAP. And the problem with the industry is that most of the time, system integrators and the software vendors are economically incentivized to convince you to do otherwise, to convince you to do something that runs against what's in your best interest. So in those cases, what ends up happening in most cases is that the system integrator or vendor is going to try to convince you or pressure you into implementing SAP and just cliff diving straight into your implementation when you haven't yet figured out those operational issues. So taking the time to do that first, before you bring on the army of system integrator consultants and spending all this money on software that you're not ready for is critical and not enough companies do that. And we see too many companies get bamboozled by the big system integrators, by the software vendors. So this is very, very important takeaway. And then a a third takeaway here is making sure that the effective controls are in place when we implement new technology. In the case of Revlon, they went live with the new system and they actually reported that they're going to be late in their financial filings because they couldn't get the data that they needed to report their financial results to the SEC. And that's another unacceptable result of the project in my opinion. Those types of controls should have been defined and figured out ahead of time. And we've seen enough SF4 HANA clients on our side uh, implement the technology to know that it's capable of providing that sort of capability within a timely fashion. So the fact that Revlon was unable to do that tells me that something was very wrong with the way that internal controls were uh, baked into the overall uh, solution that was being rolled out. And again, it gets back to that operating model, business blueprint, making sure you've done all that legwork up front before you start slamming in technology and trying to figure out how how you're gonna figure it out later. And then finally, the fourth takeaway here is that a negative ROI should be unacceptable for anyone implementing technology. In the case of of Revlon, they clearly have not recouped their costs. I don't know what their ROI looks like, but I'm fairly certain it's negative based on all the things that they pointed out and all the write downs they took and their, their financial results as a result of this project. But they, they actually list in my blog, I, I include a, a complete list here. Here's a couple examples of things that they mention as problems they had as a result of their SAP project. They, they were unable to recover lost sales, uh, customer service levels were disrupted, um, Another interesting one is they they point out that their management team was distracted by the SAP failure and just trying to clean up the mess, that it was cannibalizing their time and their focus on more strategic initiatives. I have no idea how you quantify that, but that had to have some sort of material impact on the results of of Revlon in the short term and the long term. Um, Significant capital and operating expenditures increased. They had difficulty processing payments to vendors. Um, They couldn't fulfill federal, state, and local reporting. Uh, greater than expected expediting shipping fees. So uh, expediting shipments to customers because the inventory wasn't in the right place at the right time and they were having to rush orders and spend all this money rushing orders that they could have just been planning for, had the system and the overall business process has been working the way they should have been. And then finally, another thing they mentioned here is the inability to uh, fill customer orders inaccurately on a timely basis or at all. Those That's an exact quote from, from the, uh, the SEC filing, and so I, I find that pretty interesting. That uh, some customer orders just were not filled at all. Um, that that to me is a big red flag. So these are some of the uh, some of the big takeaways from the Revlon failure. These are things that can be avoided. I, I can't speak for the Revlon management team or their consultants or whoever was involved in this, but I can't imagine that this is what they signed up for when they went to implement S four Hana. So. These sorts of failures can be avoided. We can take some of these lessons, apply them to our projects, and and they should be enough to ensure that we get off on a better footing and a better track than what we experienced at Revlon. So that's an overview of the Revlon ERP failure and some of the takeaways from that. We're going to continue diving into more case studies, though, as we go. And uh, before we do, though, I'd love to hear from the audience, you know, what do you think so far? What do you think the biggest challenges are with ERP implementations. What's the biggest root cause of failure? Just based on what you know so far, what you perhaps learned in today's episode, what's resonating the most? I'd love to hear from the audience here on what you think the biggest failure points are. Um, So drop that in the chat. We're gonna take a quick break. When we come back, we're gonna dive into the Haribo ERP failure case study as well as the little ERP failure case study. So one's a candy manufacturer, one's a grocery retailer. And then later in the show, we're gonna have Wayne Holtham from the third stage consulting team based out of Australia. He's going to be on talking about why ERP implementations fail, a little bit more focused on SAP, but ERP in general as well. So be sure to stick around. We've got a lot more to cover. We'll be back with more Transformation Ground Control.
2: I'm excited to share our newly released 2024 Digital Enterprise Operations Report. This free download is available on the Third Stage website at thirdstage-consulting.com. This report is truly packed full of technology independent and agnostic insights for your project to ensure that you're strategically optimized for success. Download your copy today with the QR code in front of me or visit our website for more details. Hello,
0: welcome back to Transformation Ground Control, episode number 155. My name is Eric Kimberling. You can find new episodes of this show every Wednesday at TransformationGroundControl.com. This show is sponsored by Third Stage Consulting, an independent consulting firm that helps clients throughout the world with the third, reach the third stage of digital transformation success. And this podcast is produced by Major Tom Productions. So thank you for being here today. And in the midst of our discussions here around ERP failure case studies, we wanted to shift gears here and talk about Haribo, which is a big candy manufacturer that uh, recently failed in its ERP implementation. So I want to roll you this clip, which is also from my YouTube channel, talking about the case study of this failure, as well as some of the lessons and takeaways from it. So let's roll the clip here talking about Haribo and its ERP failure. They had some pretty significant supply chain disruptions after going live on the system uh, late last year in 2018. It was, it was announced in December, the news kind of broke out that uh, they were unable to supply retailers and their customers with, with product and uh, due to some of the disruptions in the supply chain shortly after going live with SAP. And I recently wrote a blog about this, which you can access uh, in the comments field or in the description field of the video below. Uh, but in the blog, I covered five lessons from this. And even though Haribo is not a client of third stages, uh, it's always interesting to analyze uh, the, the, the reasons for failures like these. And one of the things that Uh, One of the big takeaways I had from reading about uh, this failure in the uh, research that I've done is how could this possibly have happened? I mean, regardless of whether or not you you like SAP as a product personally or whether or not uh, the technology was the right fit for them, how could this possibly have gotten to the point where they go forward with the transformation and the supply chain is disrupted and they lose revenue, they lose sales because they can't get products on the shelves? And it really came down to me to five things that that I found um, in thinking through this. And the first, I guess, maybe not so much a finding, but just a key takeaway from this is that when you look at a SAP implementation or a digital transformation of any sort, operational disruption is probably the single biggest cost and risk associated with the transformation. When we're first beginning a transformation, oftentimes we're looking at, you know, what on paper is this implementation going to look like in terms of time, resources and cost? And it's kind of a hypothetical model of what what do we think it's going to cost. But what we often don't realize is, first of all, that estimate oftentimes is not realistic. And second of all, that estimate typically does not include hidden costs, long-term costs, things that may negatively impact you as an organization or really add to the cost of the transformation. So that's the first thing is operational disruption is, is a big problem. In fact, in the research that our team has done over the last 10 years or so, we found that around 50% of organizations have some type of material operational disruption at the time of go live. And what we mean by that is things like not being able to ship product, not being able to close the books, some type, some type of thing that brings your company, not to a screeching halt, but slows your company down significantly. So that's one thing to be aware of is how can we mitigate the cost and risk of operational disruption? If we do that one thing, we've significantly mitigated the number one cost and risk factor in digital transformations. The other second lesson uh, or takeaway from this uh, case study is that business processes management is super important to these types of projects. We need to do a good job of defining what our future state business process flows are gonna be, what our business model is gonna be so that we can configure SAP or whatever ERP system or digital transformation technology that we're laying on top of that we need the business to drive the technology rather than assuming that the technology is somehow gonna drive our business. And if we get in a position where technology is driving our business, then we're in trouble because we suddenly have lost sight of why we're going through this digital transformation in the first place. So business process management is something that I would would suspect was not done well on this project because if it was, it should have exposed some of the problems that they ran into uh, a lot sooner than they actually uh, realized those problems. The third thing, which kind of dovetails in with the second around business process management, is that you want to make sure that your digital transformation aligns with your evolving business model. So in other words, we don't want to automate the way things are today. We want to automate things how they're going to be in the future. And again, being a person that's on the outside looking in at this situation, since they're not a client of ours, one thing I I read about is that they're opening uh, more manufacturing facilities uh, in Asia, I believe it was, so they're kind of shifting some of their production. I believe it was from Europe to Asia. And so their supply chain in general was changing and evolving. And I, I guess one thing I would look into if I was a consultant to them is how well aligned was the digital transformation with that reality of where they were headed as an organization. And like I said, uh, chances are there was some misalignment there between where they um, were headed and what the way they were implementing the software. And so that would be kind of a third thing is to make sure that the Uh, system is aligned with the evolving business model. And then the fourth thing is that system testing is oftentimes overlooked. Oftentimes system testing focuses primarily on does the software work? Have we worked out the bugs? Does the integration work? Are all the APIs working? Um, The configurations, the customization, if it's all working technically, then we're good to go, right? But what we don't oftentimes spend enough time on is on the business process testing the user acceptance testing, conference room pilots, whatever word you want to use for it, kind of testing the process using the technology, but testing the process and also testing roles and responsibilities. How are people going to do their job? Can they do their job in the system? Does everything flow seamlessly? Do they they know what they need to do outside the system too? That's the other thing. A lot of times we forget about, we're not just implementing SAP, we're implementing SAP plus a bunch of other stuff that happens outside the system sometimes and how do we make sure that's all integrated? And the way we do that is through user acceptance testing, conference room pilots, and really driving that testing process via our business processes. If we do that well, and if Haribo had done that well, I can't imagine there's much likelihood that they would have experienced the kind of uh, supply chain disruptions uh, that they had they here. And then fifth and finally is, and this is kind of a stopgap baseline type of thing that needs to be in effect with any digital transformation, is that you need executive governments and leadership. You need the key guys and gals at the top of the organization driving this. They need to be aware of what's going on and they need to be empowered and know enough about what's going on to know when to hit the pause button or hit the reset button in some cases. And you certainly don't wanna get to the point where you can't ship product, you can't deliver to your customers, you ruin your brand, your recognition, whatever it is. You don't wanna get to that point and it's up to the executives. It's not your system integrator, it's not SAP or your, your vendor whoever that is, it's up to you to make sure that, that uh, you, you are empowered to do that. And so that's really the fifth takeaway. And I guess, you know, the, to summarize the whole thing, you know, the whole lesson from this for me is that digital transformations are your project. And that's something that I'm seeing in the industry lately with as complex and sophisticated as technology has become in recent years with, with the cloud and, um, you know, predictive analytics, machine learning, blockchain all this new stuff is happening so quickly that we're losing sight of why we're implementing digital transformation in the first place. We're not doing it for those um, breakthrough technologies. We're doing it to change our business and to make it better. And despite those new technologies, it, it, it's your transformation. You have to be the one driving it. It's not you know, your system integrators. It's not your system uh, vendors. It's your project. And so I think that's the key takeaway. The one thing I would leave you with is when you're going through this type of project, do what you need to do to bring in the right consulting partners, the right internal, external resources uh, to manage this and stay on top of it. Manage the project like you would any sort of uh, acquisition or a big capital improvement project or, you know, whatever the case may be, entering a new market. You know, executives tend to spend a lot of time and have a lot of governance on those types of projects. But when it comes to a digital transformation, oftentimes they want to delegate that to other outside sources or, you know, push it down internally within the organization. So it's real important that we uh, have have a a vision of what that should look like going forward in terms of executive um, ownership of the project. All right, another great case study and good lessons learned there with Haribo. And uh, hopefully uh, you've you've gotten some good takeaways there. I'd love to hear from the audience. Uh, Based on what you've heard so far, what do you think the biggest failure points are for ERP implementations? Based on your experience or based on what you've heard in this podcast so far here today, love to hear your feedback and just drop that in the chat here below if you don't mind. So we're going to keep talking about ERP failures, because after all, this is the ERP failure episode. So we're gonna talk about uh, Little next, and Little is a German retailer, German grocery retailer. They failed in their ERP implementation not too long ago. We're gonna dive into that case study here in just a moment. And then after that, we're gonna get into another uh, guest on the show who's gonna talk about why SAP and ERP implementations fail. That's going to be with Wayne Holtham from the third stage consulting team. So we'll have him on the show later as well. So be sure to stick around. We'll be right back with more transformation ground control.
6: If you are aiming for transformation success, turn a third stage consulting group. Learn more about us and download independent reports, videos, and other best practices at thirdstage consulting.com. Hello,
0: welcome back to Transformation Ground Control, episode number 155. My name is Eric Kimberling. You can find new episodes of the show every Wednesday at transformationgroundcontrol.com. You can also uh, find past episodes of this show, all the episodes dating back to episode number one at transformationgroundcontrol.com. This podcast is produced by Major Tom Productions and sponsored by Third Stage Consulting. Third Stage Consulting is a company I work for, I'm the CEO of, and Third Stage is an independent and technology agnostic consulting firm that helps clients throughout the world reach the third stage of digital transformation success. And in cases where the organization has not reached the third stage of transformation success and perhaps failed in their efforts, Uh, We also provide project recovery services as well as expert witness services to help clients either get the project back on track and or provide expert witness testimony to help them in their legal disputes involving an ERP failure. So be sure to reach out to me if you'd like to learn more about Third Stage and what we do. I've included my contact information below. So next thing I want to get into is uh, the little uh, ERP failure. This is probably – this is the most recent case study uh, in our list here or in our discussion here in today's episode – uh, Littles is the big German retailer that uh, recently tried to implement SAP and they failed in their efforts. So let's dive into it. I'm gonna roll you this clip from from my YouTube channel where I talk about the little failure and some of the lessons and takeaways from it. So let's roll the clip about the little failure at ERP or the, sorry, not the little failure at ERP, but the ERP failure at Little. Little, which is a German grocer, uh, grocery retailer uh, based in Germany. They recently tried to implement SAP And they spent about 500 euros, 500 million euros on the project, which is close to 600 million U.S. dollars and had to pull the plug on the project and uh, eventually just went back to their legacy uh, inventory management system. And I always find these failures to be really interesting. I I prefer to write and video blog about successes. Uh, If you read my blog's on the Third Stage website. You'll find a a lot of my articles, including a recent article, about uh, success successful implementations, and we took a case study of one of our recent clients that is in the process of implementing uh, SAP S4 HANA, and we wrote a a little case study about what uh, they've done to make that successful, and then some of the pitfalls they've experienced and the ways they've overcome those pitfalls. So that's generally the way I like to look at these types of projects, but in this case, it's always good to also look at failures, which is kind of an extreme example of what can go wrong when you don't follow implementation best practices. And some of the, the key findings or takeaways that that I pull from the article as I read it, there were there are five different things that I blog about this in, in the recent blog that I, I published on our website. Uh, the first is that organizations oftentimes are unwilling to make the changes they need to. There's a really interesting specific example in the article that I linked to from my blog, where they talk about how uh, Little had a way of, or in the, they historically valued their looked at their inventory management uh, by looking at purchase price, whereas SAP standard functionality out of the box is based on retail price. And so that was just an interesting dynamic where they they decided that it was more important to keep things the way they were, and they tried to customize SAP to fit that, that uh, as-is state, if you will. Now, I'm not familiar with little. I don't know how critical that business requirement was or whether or not that's something they could actually change, but it was something that I thought was really interesting about how SAP and other types of ERP software really need to be reconciled with the way your business runs today. And you have to do one of two things. You have you have to change the software to fit your business or you have to change your business to fit the software. And there's no right or wrong or easy answer, but you just have to recognize that a lot of times companies aren't willing to make the changes they need to. And it sounds like in this case, they, they probably didn't make the changes they needed to, to make the project successful. And that's just one of uh, I'm sure many examples that they faced uh, throughout that implementation. A, a second thing that I took away from reading the article is about software customization. It sounds like they customized the software quite a bit. And you know, our research shows that about 90% of organizations do customize software to some degree, but it's a slippery slope. Once you start to customize and end users realize that you can customize and that you will customize, a lot of times that becomes a symptom of a deeper issue, which is people don't want to change. And so they end up requesting customization. So it's really important to have some solid due diligence and project governance and controls in place to where you can validate and prioritize customization needs to make sure that you're not just covering up a deeper seated resistance to change type of issue. The other thing that's a takeaway here is a lot of times when we deal with clients that are struggling with customization and, and perhaps having to customize too much, we find that it's actually because they don't have a good organizational change management mechanism in place. They don't have a good strategy and plan for dealing with organizational change so they end up customizing the software and that very well could be what happened here with this particular uh, case study, a retailer, although again I'm not close to the details other than what, what I've read in the press over the last few days since, since the news broke on this story. The third thing that I write about in the blog is about how uh, choosing the, your SAP system integrator or your ERP system integrator, whichever software you might be using is important, but it's not the only answer. In this case, it sounds like they deferred pretty largely to their system integrator. And that's something I see a lot with our clients, even even right now, especially with, with S4 HANA being a relatively new product. Oracle and Microsoft Dynamics also have pretty new products in the marketplace in terms of their flagship products. So there's not a lot of knowledge out there outside of the reseller and system integrator channels. So what we see is a lot of companies having this dangerous, blind faith in their system integrators and just kind of deferring the entire project to them. And again, I don't know if this is exactly what happened here with Little in Germany, but I, I'm speculating or uh, assuming that it may have been the case just based on some of the facts that I've read uh, of this, this story so far. The fourth thing is that it, it sounds like they had a lot of turnover at the executive level uh, while this transformation was happening over the course of, I think it was four or five years or maybe even a little bit longer. That they were trying to get uh, the system implemented and it was just a, a good kind of a stark reminder that when you've got executive turnover or more commonly even executive misalignment that really trickles down the organization and it really defeats or undermines the odds of your project succeeding so when your executives aren't aligned or if your project's not aligned with your executives even if the executives themselves are aligned What ends up happening is your project ends up getting out of sync with what the organization needs and wants, and that creates a lot of problems later on. So that's something else from an organizational change perspective that that we always advise our clients is make sure that you're looking at alignment with how your project is being implemented, the decisions you're making, the business process decisions you're you're rolling out, uh, the organizational design changes, make sure that's all aligned with your executive's vision and kind of where you're headed as an organization because it's really common, it's one of those things that you don't really hear a lot about, and, you know, people don't talk a lot about, which is that project teams and these implementation initiatives in general tend to get misaligned with the overall uh, vision and strategy uh, of the organization. And then the, fi- the fifth and final thing that, that I wrote about in this particular blog is that the SAP software works. I know everyone likes to rail on SAP because it's a you know, a big, complex, robust system there's a lot of high profile failures out there that you can point to with sap if you go back 10 or 20 years you've got hershey's and waste management and um you know now obviously this is another one that will go down in the in, in history is as a, as a big failure of sap's but one thing that sap in my opinion struggles with is that a lot of their clients are fortune 500 fortune 1000 large multinational organizations so when they fail you're going to hear about it but what i found is that Companies that implement other types of software, whether it's Microsoft Dynamics or Oracle or uh, PeopleSoft, Infor, Epicor, whatever, they're just likely to fail and typically they fail because of the same types of reasons why people with SAP commonly fail. So the point here is that typically the ERP software that's out there today, whether it's SAP or any other product, it works. Um, one of the stats that SAP has out on their website, if you go look, is that 80% of retailers in the Forbes Global 2000 are uh, SAP customers. So they obviously have a lot of customers in the retail and grocery space. They're using the product successfully. So I don't think it's really an issue of does the product work? The bigger question is does the product or can the product work for your organization and can you implement it in a way that's going to work for your organization? Not to say that SAP is perfect or any software is perfect. They all have their strengths and weaknesses, but in general, Uh, The software works, it's just a matter of how well aligned it is with your your business operations and how well you reconcile the differences between the two. So those are just a few of the things that are takeaways here. I think the bottom line here is that, you know, in my years as an expert witness, I unfortunately have to analyze a lot of cases like these uh, in, in our experience providing implementation QA for system integrators providing organizational change management support on SAP and other types of projects. Uh, these are some of the common things we run into. So it's not just a matter of this particular case study or this particular failure. This is something we see pretty commonly in other types of implementations as well. And, and again, this these lessons here that we're talking about have really nothing to do with SAP. I think it has. these are things that would apply whether you're implementing Oracle or Microsoft Dynamics or any other product for that matter out there uh, in the marketplace. So that is our last case study for today's episode on Little and uh, unpacking their ERP failure. Hopefully that provides some good context. I'd be curious to hear from the audience here, what do you think Little's biggest mistake was, just based on what you just heard? And uh, drop in the chat, I'd love to hear your feedback. Where do you think they went wrong? What should they have done better? What's the number one advice you would have given them if you could sort of go back in time and and give them some some advice? Love to hear your feedback below. So be sure to drop that in the chat. And uh, we're gonna bring on our last guest of this episode, Wayne Holtham from the Third Stage Consulting team. He's going to be on talking about why SAP ERP implementations fail. And we're going to have a good discussion between he and Kyler from our team talking about that implementation, that case study, uh, or not that case study, but just in general why ERP implementations fail. And this is really meant to augment some of the lessons we've gotten from the case studies here so far. Um, he, Wayne, like myself, is part of the our, ex, our expert witness team. So he's one of the experts on our team that provide expert witness testimony. He's also a very senior guy that has provided a lot of consulting to ERP implementations over decades. So he's been doing this a long time, longer than I have even, and uh, he's got a lot of good perspectives on why projects fail and what you can do to avoid failure. So he's going to be a great guest to have on the show here, and in, in, uh, Kyler will have that discussion with him here in just a moment. First, we're going to take a quick break. We'll be back with more Transformation Ground Control.
5: When I wake up, well, I know I'm going to be, I'm going to be the man who wakes up next to you. When I go out, If you are aiming for transformation success, turn to 3rd Stage Consulting Group. 3rd Stage's independent and technology-agnostic consulting team helps clients define their digital strategies, define their roadmaps and manage their transformations. With offices in the US, Europe and Australia, our team helps the world's most forward-thinking organisations through their transformation pitfalls and risks.
0: Hello, welcome back to Transformation Ground Control, episode number 155. My name is Eric Kimberling. You can find new episodes of this show every Wednesday by going to transformationgroundcontrol.com. You can also subscribe to us at Apple Podcast, uh, Amazon, Google Podcast, YouTube, wherever you listen or watch to podcasts. Uh, be sure to check us out and subscribe, or you can just go to Transformation Ground Control for the aggregated view of where all the different places that you can find the podcast and all the past episodes. Just go to transformationgroundcontrol.com. So in our last segment here, our last discussion regarding ERP failures for this episode at least, we want to dive into why SAP ERP implementations fail with Wayne Holtham from the Third Stage Consulting team. He's based out of Australia. I'll let him tell a little bit about his background here in just a moment. Uh, But really good to have Wayne on the show because he's been involved in not only helping tons of clients throughout the world with their implementations over the years, But he's also helped with project recoveries, and he's also one of uh, a few people on the third-stage consulting team that also act as expert witnesses in lawsuits. And the reason that's so important is because when you're involved with lawsuits as an expert witness, you end up just learning a ton of stuff, a lot of really confidential stuff that most people don't ever get to see. So you get to see a lot of what causes these massive high-profile failures in the marketplace So having him on the show to talk about why implementations fail, we thought would be a very valuable exercise and a very valuable discussion. He's been on this podcast many times in the past and has always provided great perspective. So really look forward to to this discussion here between Kyler and Wayne. So I'll turn it over to you, Kyler, to guide the discussion here with Wayne on why SAP implementations fail.
2: I am very excited to welcome Wayne here from our APAC team um, to talk about some global SAP challenges. Um, So welcome, Wayne. Thanks so much for joining us today.
7: Thanks, Kyla. Great to be here. It's really uh, good to be back on uh, talking to you.
2: Yeah, a veteran member of Transformation Ground Control. So we are very excited to have you back. And today we're talking um, kind of almost as a capstone conversation of what we've talked about a lot this year, which is kind of SAP epidemic of failures that we've seen. And whether it's high profile news stories, whether it's our own client work when it comes to our restoration and rescue projects, and even our expert witness work, which we're able to do because we have that technology agnostic and independent positioning in the marketplace. So with that, we came up with a a fun way to kind of talk about it today. And and we're talking about um, Control S for sanity, surviving the soap opera of SAP implementations. Um, So Wayne, I, I Again, I I know much of our audience knows you, but if you wouldn't mind, would you just give us a quick background um, of what you do here at Third Stage and kind of your um, overall experience with SAP?
7: Yeah, sure. I'm Wayne Holtham. I'm the vice president for the uh, APAC region, so I'm based uh, in Australia. And probably my background is I've spent the last 25, maybe even a bit longer, don't care to admit that, but um, years in 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 digital transformation, a lot of them have been SAP rollouts, and so uh, there's been good, there's been bad, and there's been really ugly. So
2: yeah, yeah, the good, the bad, and the ugly. Well, we're going to cover all of all of that today. But as Wayne said, he manages a lot of our APAC business, or all of our APAC business, as well as a lot of our global clients, because we do have clients, you know, that have have parts across the globe that we kind of tackle as a team-based approach. And if you wanna see more from Wayne as kind of pre-work for this conversation, he's actually on our playlist and you can um, see all of his, specifically my personal favorites are the process mining and the target operating model he talks about too. But today we're gonna talk a little bit about SAP. So Wayne, kind of big question here is why are SAP implementations so difficult?
7: Well, yeah, it's always the big challenge because if you talk to the salesperson for SAP, they aren't difficult. They're very easy to actually roll out. But the challenge is the organisation. SAP is quite detailed, and it's quite it requires a lot of understanding of who you are as an organisation, as well as how you go about the business you actually do. And um, often um, they're sold as if, oh no, we'll just put our approach in and just roll it out, and everything will be all fine on the day. And um, and that's that's the challenge. And I suppose where some of the failures happen is that if we're an SAP client already, and we've had SAP for a number of years, and then we're moving to a new, the S4, the problem with that is that previously we could sort of do what we wanted. We could customize it to suit our every need. And then when we get to the new S4, it's not as easy to be able to do that. And so... Um, so that's, that's often where that transition is not just an upgrade anymore. It's actually a, a complete shift uh, in the way you think, the way you operate, the, all the screens you see. Um, and that's, that's what's so difficult.
2: So it sounds like even if you had a legacy SAP product, moving to specifically S4 HANA is almost like a completely new evaluation and implementation.
7: Yeah, it is. And, and, and it's interesting because S4 is looking for Um, roles and responsibilities and and people actually doing certain tasks. Whereas previously, that was blurred. It was anybody could do anything. You could limit the access that some people might have had to SAP, whereas now it's much more about the roles, processes, and responsibilities. And so that's a whole different way of working for many organizations because I've never had that sort of uh, definition about who did what and, and restriction on how they go about and do it. So...
2: So, speaking of drama, since we are talking about the soap operas, we see a lot of very high-profile SAP failures in news coverage. Do you still do you feel like SAP gets a bad rap on that? Um, as we don't see a lot of times as many ho- high-profile failures by someone say on the same level like Oracle.
7: Yeah, I think SAP deserves a bit of the, the bad rap they get and, and and I'm not being mean there, it's just yeah. the fact that I've got a great sales machine and it makes makes it like we've just got to flick all these switches and and the lights are on as such. And and SAP's not like that. Um, and and that's the problem is they sell a very easy solution when really it's probably the most complicated solution of all of the RPs I've ever worked with. So so it's um if you've done SAP and done it well, you could roll out any other system. But not many get it right, and that's the challenge I think <laughs> that happens with uh, with sap implementations
2: so when you talk about kind of the the need to define that phase zero planning for SAP implementation? What if you already have that legacy system? We just see so many clients, especially in those high profile cases, that are looking at going from their legacy SAP system to S4 HANA or even going to an Oracle ERP opportunity. How do you ensure that you actually know what you're getting into in that evaluation phase and you have kind of that pre-work done?
7: Well, it's an interesting uh, thing for many organizations is that understanding what you do and how much you actually use your current SAP system is, is what that readiness should actually look like. What's my data look like? How should that be? And I'll just share a little little bit of a story with you. We worked with a, a large um, client uh, in, in Asia and, um, and they said, well, we've had SAP for the last 14 years. And so, uh, you know, we're really embedded with SAP." And so we actually did a process mining exercise for a particular section of their business. And we realized that they didn't actually use SAP. They actually used SAP for their financials and they used SAP to actually put numbers into, but no one actually outside of the back office actually used Mm -hmm. SAP. And so it it was probably less than 5% of the business that that actually was using SAP. And so you start going, well, should I actually put in SAP again or move, or should I put in something new because it's exactly the same thing? And so they actually opted to go to a completely new platform when they realized they actually don't use their SAP. And there's a lot of that happening for clients across the globe where really we don't use SAP in the way we have spreadsheets that feed information into SAP. We draw information out that's based on those spreadsheets that fed it in. Are we using SAP? Not really. And that's, that's probably the challenge why many struggle to actually implement either a new platform or SAP again.
2: Wow, that's really interesting. So not that we're going to, we gave your pre-work on process mining, so we won't go down the rabbit hole there. But how important are our initiatives like process mining or even maybe pre, pre-implementation audits to understanding those really critical requirements when looking at a large system like SAP S4HANA?
7: Yeah, well, we, we, we work with a um, a gap, we call it a gap analysis. And so it's really understanding all of those areas. What's my data like? Where's my data come from? Do I use anything outside the system to feed my system? And so that readiness piece starts to understand how I actually use SAP. What are the processes I have in the business that I actually use that are, are value processes? And are there any areas in the business that I find, you know, I've created bottlenecks as such? You know, authorization is always a good one. I might have... You know, I'm buying a paperclip, and I need 20 people to sign off on that paperclip because it's spend of money. You know, those sorts of things are things that old SAP, um, I suppose, uh, implementations have, have built up over time. And these days, we want to be able to streamline that and smooth that out. So, so the phase zero is a very important part because only then can you actually say, well, here's what I need to address prior to the SI or the solution integrator coming in to configure my new uh, SAP um, solution. If it's S4, it's S4. Um, and, and so there are those those things that are vital. And, it, and it's interesting, some people say, how long does that take? For a large organization, it might take six months. And so am I prepared to actually wait six months to get my system in? Mm-hmm. Or am I prepared to actually not do that and then spend 12 months to two years extra than what I thought I could do yeah. to actually implement? And that's these failures. Uh, tend to happen, and where we start to see them in the news.
2: Absolutely, and that's such a good point. You know that resourcing point that a lot of a lot of times our client partners do their due diligence, but there's so much conflicting kind of noise in the marketplace around what that should look like. You have kind of the the vendor speak around it, which of course comes with a a situational bias. And then you have you know consultants speak because you have a whole consultancy in SAP. And that kind of brings me to my next topic that I wanted to talk to you about, which was really that kind of the cast of characters when you look at an SAP implementation. And a lot of times we can see just chaos on that project team because there's so many different people involved. So who are some main characters in an SAP implementation and can you describe their roles?
7: Well, there's the the program owner or sponsor, and I think that's that's one of those areas that you know they like the conductor, and um, the problem is if you're not very good at conducting a a full piece, you know, a hundred piece orchestra, which is essentially what a SAP implementation is. There's so many different moving moving parts, then then you start to get that chaos happen, and then then we've got separate project managers that sit under under this program manager because we've got change, we've got data, we've got um, processes. We've got all those sort of project managers that we actually need to have covering and addressing those, and um, and so that makes it difficult because all of a sudden I need to have them all moving in sequence. I need to have them playing in time. I need to I need to have things ready at a certain time so I can test that and check that, and um, and all the time I'm I'm asking the client or the customer or the organisation to give me information as well, which isn't always readily available. And so it's, it's a real a comedy of errors as such. It's, it's very hard to have a, a, um, you know, a classical tune come out of a SAP implementation. It's more of you know, um, uh, you know a whole lot of people playing individual songs. And that's, that's the problem with the characters, the characters we have. And so whether it's a sponsor, whether it's a project manager, whether it's, it's people within their leads and analysts and those sort of people, they all need to play their part, but they don't always know what the tune is. And that's the difficulty.
2: Yeah, that harmony, right, that you need in a healthy project. Absolutely. And when you when you look at teams, you had mentioned one of our clients that have had SAP for 14 years. And honestly, that's kind of a short time to have SAP. There's many people that have had them. Had them as a legacy system for a very long time. So, can you talk about a project team biases when it comes to SAP and how that might lead to implementation challenges?
7: Yeah, and it's it's interesting because when you've had um, uh, when you've when you've got some SIs that are very focused on um, on SAP and they are used of the old SAP where I can get into the backend, write code, change code, customize that code they have this view that we can make anything happen for you. But with that comes that extra complication of, you know, trying to be able to test, trying to be able to get it so it actually works together. And so the bias ends up being where the SI is so fixed on, I can make it do what you want because that's what I always did. But it ends up being a dichotomy in the sense that – SAP don't want you to do that. And so, so it's that challenge they have where they're saying, well, we don't want you to change our code. We want you to actually stay to standard, stay to best practice. And so um, that's that's often the, the challenge when you've got you know seasoned SAP SIs that are used to doing it the old way, because that's where they drive their dollars, I suppose. That's their billable hours, is the more I do in customization, the more I make changes. The more the implementation costs, and so for them that's a value driver for them. Um, for the organisation, now the innocent person sitting there going, "Well, I just want what I want, and you know, show me it." Yeah. <laughs> and it's often hard not to be able to, to be able to see what they've uh, what they're actually getting. So.
2: Absolutely, especially in a system so complex, you know, you would need a year-long demo to see, you know, all of the functionalities that you you really have in that. So this might be a kind of a hard question, but there's there's so many different SAP specific consultants or someone that might have a financial relationship with SAP. So when you're looking at those consultants, are they the villain? In the SAP drama, or who would you say the villain is when it comes to SAP drama implementations? I,
7: I would, I, well, there's, there's, there's probably various levels of villains. And so the salesperson's the biggest villain in my mind is because they come in and they sell a dream. And we all love to have a dream, don't we? But then all of a sudden we go, well, uh, can I realize that dream? And then the SI comes in and goes, well, I can help you, you know, I'm here, I'll be able to sort this out for you. And and so that there's, there's two villains there as such in the sense that one is that I get a, uh, an everlasting uh, stream of money coming in because I bought licenses from SAP or bought Access and that's the salespeople. And then I look at the SIs who have got this, well, we can do anything you want. The longer we're here and the more people we have, your system will be great. And then when it doesn't work out that way, it's all of a sudden, well, you signed off on that. So thank you, Mr. Client. And that's where the, that's where the challenge is. So there's, there's two probably main villains as such. Um, but I don't think the, the client gets off free in that, in the sense that, you know, if they really don't know what they want, they can let one of these projects go way out of control before they actually really realize that it's way out of control. And I think that's the, that's the, that's the other part. And that's the, the the person who's being you know um, shadowed with all of this uh, this wonderment of uh, of the dream that they purchased but but now it's not actually turning out that way
2: that's incredible that's definitely um, a, a lot to manage so as a, you know. A, Obviously, SAP targets large, complex, likely global organizations. So you have a lot under you. But if you are a, a project manager, really with any system, how do you ensure that you keep ownership over those strategic goals that you want to achieve as a business, as opposed to getting, you know, enchanted um, by some of some of this? this really powerful sales jargon from both your SI and your vendor who are supposed to be trusted partners.
7: Yeah, that's right. And I, th- I think that one of the things that the business the organization itself has to take control. And so, okay, understand how do we operate? What do we want to operate? And when we're looking at demonstrations, can you show me how your system would do that? And all of a sudden you start to get that that ownership that actually controls then what's happening and so all of a sudden you get that view of here's what I need to happen and so can you make that happen for me whereas if we leave it up to the to the SI they don't know your business really and so they often look at other businesses they've worked with or just their own general view of life and and will will craft something that actually suits what they need not necessarily what the business needs and uh, and when you get that situation that's where you get that the users don't like using it They want to go back to their spreadsheets, um, you know, and failure starts to be the word that uh, is on everyone's lips.
2: Absolutely. So rounding out kind of our our cast of characters and how to kind of manage to them, what does your team do when it comes to a large SAP, either implementation, restoration, selection project? What's your role in that?
7: So, so it's interesting. We, we, um, we, we've helped build the operating model. So how's the business want to operate in this new environment? So that's one of the things we do. The second thing we do is understand, we do the gap analysis. So how do you operate today? So instead of doing a lot of as-is mapping and all of that sort of thing, we actually go out on site. And we actually look at how people actually do what they do. So if I'm going to produce a widget, I'm going to do something. What information am I sourcing to actually produce that and supply that sort of thing? And so we get a picture of what that looks like. And then we understand what's the new system looking for. And so that's that gap. And so we work on some readiness projects then that allow us to be able to close that gap. And so if people aren't using the system, the aim is to drive them back to using the system as such, because it makes sense to use the system, not just because it's a system that's a new one. And, And so that's, That's the sort of work we do. And then with the SI, it's about defining those, what we call deliverables. Um, And so the deliverables are my data. So have I got good data? What am I going to do to actually clean that up, create that, build that? Um, So when the SI comes in, they have a very clear plan of approach. Their discovery can be quite short, six weeks is what they typically have, um, because all of the answers have already been provided. And so they can actually say, I have an answer to this question, this question, this question, and then I can go off and design and build. And so, whereas what you usually find is they come in and they go, oh, I don't have an answer for that. I don't have an answer for that. Okay, we need to go off and build this. And that's where we start losing control of our project. We're here with Kyler and Wayne from the Third Stage
0: Consulting team talking about why SAP implementations fail. We've got a lot more to cover. We're gonna take a quick break and we'll be back with more Transformation Ground Control. Hi, this is Eric Kimberling with Third Stage Consulting and your host of Transformation Ground Control. I want to encourage you to read our Guide to Organizational Change Management. It's a free report or a free guide that we published. It's one that I actually wrote that talks about best practices and lessons learned as it relates to change management. So as you know, on this podcast, we cover a lot of stuff related to the human sides of change, you know, organizational change management, including training, communications, org design, all kinds of stuff as it relates to change management. So if you're trying to learn more about change management or you're looking for more direction and ideas on how to get started on your change management strategy and your overall journey, be sure to check out this guide. You can read it by scanning the QR code on the screen in front of you or in the links below for this particular podcast episode, you can find a link to uh, take you to the page that will allow you to register to go ahead and download that and read it for free. So be sure to check it out. It's the guide to organizational change management uh, written by yours truly. I hope you enjoy it. Let me know what you think, and hope you enjoy the rest of this episode. Me split life,
5: life,
0: Hello, welcome back to Transformation Ground Control, episode number 155. My name is Eric Kimberling. You can find new episodes of this show every Wednesday at transformationgroundcontrol.com. And this podcast is produced by Major Tom Productions and sponsored by Third Stage Consulting, which is an independent consulting firm that helps clients throughout the world to reach their third stage of digital transformation success. So let's jump back into the conversation here between Kyler and Wayne to talk about why ERP implementations fail.
2: And when do you see kind of to, to go from the cast of characters to kind of, you know, the, the plot twist, if you will, we see headlines around SAP failures that are in the hundreds of millions, if not billions of dollars. So how did those go so incredibly wrong? And at what point, I'm sure there were a variety of points, but is there some point that those red flags start to fly when it comes to what's going on with our project and how do we ensure we, we need to course correct now?
7: Yeah, that, that, it's it's an interesting you say because I've I've been involved in some expert witness cases and I've also been involved in projects that you know some have gone six years and uh, still not gone live and so, so so that's staggering to think how come someone hasn't pulled this up earlier, um, but it is that thing of the, the 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 understanding of governance and assurance. It's making sure that you have actually completed all of that pre works before you start doing design and those sorts of other things. Because if you're designing something and you don't have all of the information, the challenge is what are you designing? And that's where the cost blows out. And there's course corrections constantly happening uh, over that time. And all of a sudden you start to go, well, should I be course correcting this? Or is it something that, you know, we need to actually really look at the whole project and actually reset fully? Whereas we sort of course correct little bits and we don't actually address the overall issue and that's why it just keeps blowing out so and the SI is quite happy to be able to help help in the sense that they just get billable hours or bring another another team in and you know it's all good and uh, but you as the client or the organization you're paying the bills and that's where the the problem is and so there's not the deterrent for the SI because they go well you know you signed off on this previous design so oh well we'll fix it for you now and and obviously there comes a cost comes with that.
2: Absolutely. And, and so when we look at kind of how those failures happened, kind of unwind that, looking at kind of the chapters or the different acts in this soap opera drama, when we look at integrations or something like being able to utilize SAP as your core function, but say you need a different application or a bolt-on for some sort of competitive advantage, SAP has been re- notorious around not integrating well or not playing well with others. What are some things that you can do to ensure that you have that interoperability strategy fully baked before you pick a system and invest so much dollars or you know any sort of currency in this specific new technology if you're not sure if it will work across your other technology stack?
7: That's interesting the uh, uh, question, Kyler, is because from, from my perspective, it's about looking at the functional architecture. You know there's solution architecture many people talk about, or enterprise architecture. The functional architecture says, well if I've got a, a CRM system that's not, say SAP and I've got SAP in the middle and I've got some other systems there, how am I going to get going to get them all to talk? And so integration is the, often the, the way to do that. But if I'm starting to look at it and say, well, I'm, I'm taking information uh, from that system and I need to reinterpret it into SAP, that's a very complex integration. And so that's where you find the complexity starts to happen in the sense that I need really detailed, you know, rule-based integrations that actually are sending my information, turning it into something else, and then putting it into SAP to understand. And then I've got to send it back to that system when, it, when something's changed. And so so that's often the problem is that we don't really understand how we want that flow of information to go from one system to the other. We just bolt things on and, you know, sometimes when you bolt it on, it doesn't line up. And so all of a sudden we have to write very, very complex information flows, which is integrations, to be able to make that happen. And so that's that's the problem. Um, Old SAP was a lot harder to actually integrate. It was more of a standalone platform. Today it's a little bit easier, but still... You need to understand what you want to flow, where you want to flow, and how much change of that flow needs to happen in the course of the integration.
2: And I, I tell this story to everyone because I still feel like I'm shocked to this day to hear it. But we we recently had a client that came to us looking for help with their SAP implementation because they built that customized integration with their SI and then did not realize that their SI actually owned it. They, they own the implementation. Imp- intellectual property, excuse me, around building that customized integration. So is is that something that that you see a lot with your, you know, bigger global clients when it comes to kind of what you talked about? Should you customize to not customize? You know, the balance between where does business process meet the technology? Yeah, and
7: that's often a problem because I get the SIN and I get them to customize or create uh, specialized integrations, and all of a sudden that custom code is theirs. It's it's something that, you know, it's often written, there isn't a, uh, a step-by-step rule book on how it's done. It's usually left up to the consultant to write that. And so then if I bring another consultant in, they'll look at it, go, oh, no, that's not right. And so, or I can't work on that because I don't, you know, it's not, not our code. And that's a challenge that organizations um, don't often understand until They've either changed their size, or or they've got some problems with the code, and they lose face, and and so they want to actually get someone else in to look at it. And it's it's specialised code, and that's the difficulty with um, with SAP. You know, these days there's a lot more already packaged uh, integrations, with our plug and play. They are much much simpler to be able to have in in uh, so you can, so anybody can work on those that's standard code. Um, follow standard protocols and so, but S- not always SAP, SIs do it that way.
2: Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's always just sometimes you you get to see kind of the industry pivoting to more transparency and then you hear a story like that and you're like, What? in the world is happening um, but it i mean it's it's obviously very prevalent and that's why you know the the steps of you know understanding that phase zero planning understanding your requirements that contracting phase is is so critical as you outlined earlier so I want to talk about kind of the new season of SAP, if you will. So what does as we come right now when we're talking, having this conversation, it's late 2023. So what does 2024 really look like for SAP implementations? They've had a rough couple of years when it comes to just overall perspective, um, just, you know, failures all over the place. What do you think that 2024 is going to look like? Is it going to be something that they actually kind of revamp that? I know for us at Third Stage, we've gotten a lot more strategic alliances at SAP, interested in kind of working with our independents. So it seems from our end, there is some shift in wanting to create that change. And then also, I'll also ask you as a part of this question about the new SAP mid-market. Push as well, trying to meet kind of net where it is, or other kind of mid market manufacturing areas. They've seen to really kind of bolt onto that space in the last couple of months too. So, what does the future look like with your crystal ball, Wayne, for SAP?
7: <laughs> well, I think it, it's interesting because SAP is coming from a place that um, of, of where they have a good market market share as such, and, and a lot of people have SAP. Moving forward, the challenge they've had is getting people to want to actually go to a new SAP. They've 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 sort of identified that we're not going to support it any longer and they've bought out new solutions and but what they're finding is that new SAP is not old SAP and so it's not a complete transition. So for them they've offered new packages of Uh, SaaS and uh, so you know subscription as a service type uh, SAP, where we've got a custom setup, oh not a a standard setup that's a multi-tenant that we can actually have people all join just like uh, other um, software vendors have done, but they're using the old way of of constructing that in the background, the back code, and so it's not as still as flexible as some of the more you know uh, systems that have been built built to suit um, yeah. multi-tenant and um, and so for them, it's going to be a bit of a challenge and they're pushing into, you know, the, the risk they've got is the big players aren't moving because they're not sure what they should go to and they see a lot of risk in it. So how do you make sales? You go to a different market. And so the mid sales is where they're starting to push now because they see that as probably a less complicated um, area of the business or area of the market. And, um, and so, that that keeps sales generating because they're not getting the sales from the, the larger players. You know, there's there's some SAP implementations that have actually been stalled, been halted because, you know, they're too too complicated as such. And so, you know, with probably still uh, 70% of SAP um, current ECC6 um, customers still waiting to move to something else. And we've got the deadline looming of 20 27, I think it is, which is coming on pretty fast. Um, you know, that, that's a that's a huge bottleneck that, that has to happen. Someone's got to change and shift somewhere. And SAP is, I think, needs to probably think a little bit more about how they ready their clients to actually feel comfortable that they are okay to make that move. And I don't think selling a shiny, bright system um, is quite enough yet to actually... Um, to uh to overcome that that risk that organizations see.
2: Yeah. Do you have the um very grouchy ladybug children's book in Australia? Yes, yes. Yeah, by Eric Carl. So that reminds me of the very grouchy ladybug because the preface of the book is this very grouchy ladybug goes and sees all of this different animals and it says, oh, you're not big enough to fight with me because it's a very grouchy ladybug. And it kind of reminds me of SAP because in the end, it decides that it actually is humble enough to fight with these different animals over the aphids on the leaf. And now here we see SAP kind of go back to businesses that they've historically said, oh, you're not big enough for us um, type of thing. And they've tried to kind of revamp that. So we'll have to kind of see how, how that goes, because it's a you know it's a very interesting strategic decision. But of course, SAP is a great system. It, it might make sense for some mid-market businesses.
7: Well, it does make sense. And, and the, you know, there's a lot of pressure to think, well, SAP has been around for a long time, it's a great product, and there are some some implementations that have got a great result. So we can't always say they are bad, but if you look at the pathway they they, uh, took to actually get that great result, they did a lot of thinking first, they understood their business, and SAP was able to satisfy that result for them. The gap is if we don't understand, we want a shortcut, we want to actually do things really, really quickly, Then we end up with this, I've got something that it doesn't want to play the same tune as I have. And so and that's the difficulty that uh, SAP faces moving forward. And you look at a lot of the global players that have SAP today, they've customized it so it works really, really well. So what am I going to go to now if I can't have customizations or a level of functionality that I've I've become accustomed to? And so, you know, a lot of the large miners and those sort of people have very mature SAP instances. Do I want to change <laughs> Well, I'm going to? You know, these are some of the things that, that are on organizations' minds, you know, and, uh, and so how do I what, – what's better out there than what I have today since I've actually made it really work for me and my people actually use it? And so, so that's some of the challenges that, um, that organizations face.
2: Yeah. And it's always great to have partners like you and your team, too, because sometimes when we come in and do an evaluation like that or a current state assessment, like you mentioned, we say, you know, actually, there's just some tweaks in your operations or your business processes that you can make because we don't have those financial relationships with selling you any additional system. So that's not our priority. Our priority is to make sure that the technology is working for your organization.
7: That's right, and and often it's like you, you're doing those tweaks that actually drive that value as against saying, well, let's throw out that system because it doesn't work, um, and, that, and that's often a benefit as well, I think, for organisations because they can actually then start to understand the business a bit better knowing the system they have and they don't have that complexity of I've got to change the system, I've got to get better at what I do, and there's a lot of work in all of that. And so um, so sometimes even before you're looking at putting a new system in, Getting that assessment and understanding, you know, what do I do? What would it need? What would it take? How could I improve? Those sorts of things are really, really valuable because if you get that right, the implementation becomes a whole lot easier to actually deliver.
2: Absolutely. So ending on a high note, let's go into some happily ever afters. Because as you mentioned, it's not always that SAP implementations fail. Sometimes SAP implementations go really well. Can you give us some examples of what that might look like for um, businesses that have kind of thrived on an SAP implementation?
7: Yeah, it's, it's interesting. Uh, in, there's a, a utility client that I, that I know of here in Australia and, and uh, they actually put in SAP and, uh, and they actually got it to the point that it was so functional that they could do every aspect of their business through SAP. And so all of the users actually used SAP, all the reports that were created, they may have done some custom reports, which is standard for SAP, but custom using the data out of SAP. Um, uh-huh. and so that's a really good outcome because all of a sudden I'm using the system completely. And then recently in S4, similar type thing where I, I built the, uh, the business around the roles, responsibilities, I made it uh, functional so people could actually put information in from the field, I was getting information into the, into the system, and so I'm able to use system, the system to make decisions, and that's a really great outcome. And SAP can make that happen, if you actually approach it the right way. And so uh, that functional architecture is a big piece to that. How do I get my information in? How do I use that information? And am I using the system? And I think that's that's for every system, but SAP in particular. If you're not using SAP as the system of choice and your preference is a spreadsheet, Excel spreadsheet, and feeding information in, then you're not really using SAP. And I think that's a lot of organisations, that's the first tick on the box, how many spreadsheets do you actually have uh, will give you a view of how much you're actually using your SAP.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And and as you mentioned earlier, that's so important on the other side of that too. Maybe you are using the system and there's just a few you know, recommendations that you can put in as far as different behaviors to ensure you're optimizing or reaching the overall potential of the system that you do have. And it can be a happy ending. Oh, it
7: can be, and if, it's, if the users are using it and they find it easy to use, it's really, really good to actually um, see, see the value SAP can have. You know, the new Fiori that SAP has, the user interface, isn't all of those crazy transactions that um, most people talk I think I think one of the things you talk about SAP lingo, so we could talk about you know, IW29 and IW36 uh, and all of those sort of things, that's all the lingo that you talk to the old world of SAP, but in the new world, it's about what am I doing? What's the task I'm doing? I'm gonna pay an account. And so that's a lot more usable if you get people using the system and the information's in there. And so so that's the difference I think that um, from old to new is uh, the way people interact with it and the interface they actually have.
2: Very good. Well, this has been an unbelievably great conversation. So thank you for sharing your insight. Any final thoughts on you want to share around s a p implementations just in general
6: uh,
7: i th- I think that people sh- <laughs> it's 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 interesting with uh, we've we've got a client at the moment that's looking at uh, they've been sold a global template for s a p and uh, and where they've rolled it out in in a couple of their global instances they've realized that the global template doesn't actually fit for their business so they've had to make a lot of modifications and so so it's about saying stepping back and saying well what do I really need? And looking at it from that perspective. And then if they understand that, SAP can be a really great option for them. But without doing that and listening to the fact that, well, we've got this, this out of the box model, just unpack it out and look, we construct it and it'll be fine. Doesn't suit everybody. And I think that's the challenge that people are facing is, um, you know, believing that, you know, one size fits all, Um, you know, and you should be able to, I'm not saying customization here, I'm saying configuration and adapt your business to it being more consistent in the way it operates is the other part to that is not just saying, not blaming the software completely. It's you as an organization. How can you be a bit more consistent in what you do? So uh, there's, and, and there's lots of instances where we have really complicated back office processes that we don't need. So.
2: Most, most definitely, you have to have you know, the right system that fits your requirements, but you also have, have to have healthy business practices, good data hygiene to ensure that they can work together in that harmonious, great analogy you gave about the symphony, I love that. If you don't mind it, I'm gonna steal it. As, moving <laughs> forward. <so. laughs> but if you'd like to learn more about SAP, we do actually have, I'll pop it up on the screen here, or you can get it in the description if you are um, consuming this on an audio um, platform. Our, our guide to SAP S4 HANA. And this is a 60 plus page playbook that really gives you kind of step-by-step step of how do you ensure that you are doing effective phase zero planning, that you have the implementation resources, understand that, and that you are optimizing via user adoption and other strategies as well. So I highly recommend that.
0: All right, great stuff. Thanks guys, that was a, a good conversation on why ERP implementations fail. And hopefully this has provided you, the audience, some good context and some good lessons from failures. And there's so much we can learn from failures, so many things we can take away and make sure that we don't make the same mistakes uh, in the future on. So that was really our goal here for today is to provide you an episode where we really dive deep into ERP failures so you can understand the things that other organizations have made or the mistakes that other organizations have made and ultimately help you avoid those same mistakes. So I hope that's accomplished the goal of what we wanted to to do here today. Uh, You can find new episodes of this show every Wednesday at transformationgroundcontrol.com. The show is produced by Major Tom Productions and sponsored by Third Stage Consulting, which is an independent consulting firm that helps clients throughout the world to reach the third stage of digital transformation success. If you'd like to learn more about Third Stage and what we do, how we could help your organization, please feel free to reach out to me. I've included my contact information below. Just go to the description field wherever you're listening or watching to this podcast. You'll find my email address. Feel free to reach out to me. I'd love to chat with you about how we can help. So hope you found this information useful. Hope you have a great day. We'll see you next week on Transformation Ground Control. Take care.